Welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know, we release three different types of podcasts. Our SJI's 10-minute lesson series aims to educate and inform listeners on a particular area of policy, giving a brief overview of somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people need to know. Our SJI interview series, where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas, and our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations at past events. This is one of those. In today's episode, we look back to last year's annual social policy conference, where we had a distinguished panel of speakers on the need for a new social dialogue. We'll hear from Danny McCoy of IBEC, Patricia King of ICTU, Damian MacDonald of the IFA, Karen Sieszielski of the IEN, and our own Sean Healy. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, and you're all very welcome to uh, the third session in uh, today's Social Justice Ireland Annual Policy Conference. And as I'm sure you'll know by now, our theme is a new social contract, a new social dialogue. And to that extent, we have a very interesting panel this afternoon. We have Danny Mackay from IBEC, Patricia King from ICTU, Damien McDonald from the IFI, and we have Sean Healy as well. And also we have... Karen Sieszelski, who is from the Irish Environmental Network. We're going to have presentations from each of our speakers, followed by a Q&A. You will be aware by now, hopefully, that in order to submit your questions, just use the Q&A box on your Zooms. There's also a chat box there, and in that chat box is available the uh, presentation or the, the link to the uh, book that you can also uh, of today's presentations that you can also get on the Social Justice Ireland website. Okay, we're going to kick off first with Danny McCoy. Danny is Chief Executive Officer of IBEC since 2009. IBEC, as many of you know, is Ireland's largest business representation uh, representative organization and the country's largest lobbying group. It has 240 staff in seven locations. And it is a presence also in Brussels. Prior to joining IBEC, Danny was a senior economist at both the Economic and Social Research Institute and at the Central Bank of Ireland. Danny, off you go with your presentation, please. Great. Thank you very much, Mick. Um, thank you to Sean and um, Social Justice Ireland for the invitation and look forward to the engagement later on. Um, I'm not using a PowerPoint. I'm uh, going to uh, just take from the paper I submitted um, and really look at this issue of social dialogue and social compact. But clearly, one of the backgrounds from 2020 is the COVID pandemic and how that has actually, in my view, reinforced the need for social dialogue. And also during 2020, I think we've seen good evidence of social partners um, working together. Um, right up at the, at the front, the, the question is the difference between social partnership and social dialogue is a question that's often asked. Um, in my own view on this, I, I don't think the distinction is necessary, but people want to uh, ditch the social partnership uh, badge, is that in the 1980s, um, social partnership, in my view, was for the individual. Uh, the individuals who could not stay in this country because they had to emigrate because there's no future, no jobs. And actually, the coming together of the social partners was the compact on that occasion was centralized wage bargaining for moderate, moderate wage increases relative to productivity, 
for taxation cuts to increase the disposable income and for industrial peace, industrial relations peace to allow for productivity to come forward to justify the wage increases against that backdrop. And, and the success of that, I think, is the turnaround where now we find um, that the individual in our society, in the way into COVID, at least, and I believe not a lot has changed as a result of COVID, we can talk about that in the Q&A, is that now individuals, not all, um, can stay in this country. We've seen the population just touch 5 million uh, during this summer. Uh, we see that disposable income is at international high watermarks. We've seen savings substantially increased during COVID, but they're at elevated levels by the start of this year. And so also the career prospects for the vast majority of people were positive and strong. People who were able to build their future in Ireland and will continue to do so. So what is the need for a social compact or a social dialogue on this occasion? I think it's got to do with goods that are, might be deferred as social um, goods, collective goods. This is the public infrastructure, the public realm. We've seen the deficiencies on housing, planning, sustainability, infrastructure, or even the scale of the public sector. A uh, comment I made at the start of the year, and I believe to be proved right actually during COVID in some of the strains that come, have come onto our society in the relative share to private public um, ratios. All of these um, are a backdrop. In IBEC, we were in addressing the COVID crisis. We set out a, a range of measures, which I think social dialogue has a role in playing as well, what we call the reboot and reimagine. It's the reimagine piece that I'm probably more interested in to just in the, in the time available uh, this afternoon to hit upon. But the reboot in itself is very significant. We've seen the largest budget in the history of the state. Uh, per capita, it's probably going to be the largest budget uh, globally. And the reason that is, is because of the success of the business and social model that we have here in Ireland, which had its precedence on that social partnership model uh, that we talked about earlier on, despite the public narrative. But actually, the last 10 years in not having that level of engagement, I think, has given rise to some of the problems that we're now grappling with. Um, and we see this with myself and Patricia at the Labour Employer Economic Forum, where those issues that came back into the labour market were as much got to do with collective goods in terms of the background for providing housing, childcare, pensions, uh, leave of various forms. And when you look at the mechanisms behind that, and in this reimagining phase, we've got with a new government, um, Commission on Pensions, Commission on Taxation and Social Welfare emerging, that the key consideration for the new social dialogue will be an instrument that actually tackles those socially provided goods in the terms of income protection measures that also COVID has brought forward, be they temporary wage subsidy schemes or employment wage subsidy schemes or the pandemic payment. These were an attempt to try to give people certainty through uncertain times. And so that crying out for having some form of income continuance model, I think an appetite has been created during COVID to which was clearly an identifiable need as a result of a hard Brexit as well, but more generally the type of wealthy society that we are now in a Western uh, European democracy context, we'll probably need to see a lot more activity in the social welfare domain that is the uh, PRSI. 
Indeed, many employers where they're enlightened will see that the coordination mechanisms around agreement about the trajectory of the social insurance scheme, both on employers and employees, um, will be a way forward to ensure that we get the type of public infrastructure that underpins the expectations of a society that's made itself in a private context one of the wealthiest in the world. So the six themes in our um, Reboot, Reimagine were really around engagement and crisis management. And I can think of no better model of than bringing in those who bring expertise to a decision making, something that um, my day has been filled with already in terms of the public health dimension, where we see that, you know, it is better to get more views than singularity views on a single objective function uh, if you want to bring society with you. I think that is also the case when we look at those problems that we see in our society right now, from income continuance, security, uh, security in terms of household, I also think in terms of security of the state and the assets of the state, in terms of um, a society that's now built around intangible assets, becomes a, a, a key consideration. But also the issues around planning infrastructure and sustainability. So that the engagement of crisis management, I think, is, has offered up the opportunity to have more elaborate form of social dialogue going forward. The fiscal policy is clearly going to be part of that, and that will be embedded in that the welfare payments I talked about will also need the complementarity on the um, taxation element. And again, the factors that we have a very light uh, base in terms of um, our taxation model is something that is, needs to be addressed. I was on the last Commission of Taxation back in 2008, and the widening of the tax base just hasn't occurred in our society. And yet we see all the time in this kind of public-private uh, dialogue, just take Dublin as a, for instance, where the, where the councils, be they city or county, are now struggling in terms of their own finances because they won't address a property tax uh, lever that's already been put in place. And every time they walk out of the meeting and just look around and see the private affluence in terms of the investment in the private stock, in the same city, it's just remarkable, the disconnect. Uh, getting people back to work, but also in terms of the quality of jobs, I think is also something that a, com a social compact can bring about. Um, in terms of prioritization of the infrastructure as embedded in the National Development Plan. And just the reimagining of Ireland more generally in terms of its responsiveness in, in, in the world, particularly in the context of the response to Brexit, where I see the lens needs to be very clearly on a shared island approach. And I think that is you know, the narrative that, the lazy narrative that Ireland can't afford um, to have a sharing of its resources across the island, uh, I think is, is a lazy narrative. I think it's a dangerous narrative. And I think that the price of not addressing uh, a shared island approach will be far heavier in the very short term uh, on this island than many people uh, would believe in terms of the uncertainty. One factor around that is actually embedded in the withdrawal agreement, where every four years now, Northern Ireland will have to make a decision on the arrangements on which they will continue on. Will they continue to be within the EU as well as simultaneously in the UK? Any decision to withdraw from that agreement brings back the border issue. So it's a, min it's a miniature Brexit moment already embedded in our society. How better to deal with that social issue than do it through a wider span of social dialogue right across the island? So that shared island approach, I think, is going to be uh, very significant. So in many ways, we look at the program for government and we look at the issues that social dialogue could include. 
Um, I think I've touched on, on many of them there. The low carbon transition and the climate challenge, again, makes no sense to see this in a divided island nature. An all island approach um, makes sense. It makes sense in the COVID. Unfortunately, our coordination mechanisms aren't such that we have none in place to actually deal with these to any great extent. On the education and upskilling, clearly for the future, we're now living in a world that's driven by intangibility rather than tangible assets. Are we uh, future-proofed for that in terms of the kind of capacity of our educational system? Um, I, I find it remarkable the amount of lack of comment about the declining perception of our universities and international rankings. Uh, perceptions they are, but perceptions matter in an intangible world. And so to have none of our universities ranked in the top 100 when 22 UK universities are ahead of us, nine Dutch universities, I could go on, is remarkable disconnect for a society that's richer than all of those societies I just mentioned. Uh, why would we not, as a country that puts a premium on education, uh, not address some of the fundamental factors in terms of the funding of that education? And therein lies one of the mechanisms that we saw in recent years um, in the absence of formalized social partnership. We got an agreement through the Cassell's report to increase employers' PRSI to be uh, earmarked for tertiary education. And indeed, the amount that was raised was small, but the principle was given that in terms of targeting things that people identified as necessary for a society, then employers are willing uh, to do their part. Uh, other, other aspects, of course, of uh, Cassell's remain the case where others abdicated um, in terms of the fee mechanism for students. Again, the naivety of pretending this is some term of fairness it's fairness of access, but if the consequence is that the underfunding means the experience and the perception goes downwards, then that's by far a false economy, and particularly a society that can afford uh, to bring as many people into the educational system, but to ensure that they actually pay for it as well through future income. These are the type of mechanisms I think a social um, dialogue model would have to grapple with and address. Diversity and gender balancing, another issue, gender pay gaps, but also the diversity and inclusion in our society. Some of this may be through the work-life balance that the remote working is now imposing upon us during COVID, how much of that stick into the future? Will that be at a price of a split workforce? Those who go to an office, for instance, and those who stay at home, will they all have equal experiences in terms of their progression? Is that something that a social dialogue and a social compact can actually address? And then there's the issue, which I'm sure Patricia will bring forward, and we'll talk again later this afternoon on it a number of fronts, uh, the employment rights. But employment rights also bring forward employee responsibilities. On the last piece in the paper, um, one of the features that is often put forward there, um, and happily, happy to discuss it at a later point, but conscious of time, is the idea of a universal basic income. Um, I, I note tongue-in-cheek that the word universal basic income is used today in the context of arts. So if it's truly universal, then we're probably all in for some payment in our artistic endeavors. Uh, I think it's a sectoral um, basic income. Um, and again, this, I suppose, at the heart of it goes to language and what do we mean? So if we can't use the word social partnership, let's use the word social dialogue. If we can't use the word all island economy, let's use the words uh, shared island. But again, that narrative and those descriptors 
were one of the features, I believe, of original social partnership models, where people knew when they said things what they were talking about and didn't cross, have cross-purposes in terms of the description, um, which sometimes can be ideological. And that's fine if they are ideological, at least you know where somebody's position is. But again, this, this use of language and phraseology, um, I think is really important in terms of a glossary of terms. It may seem very stupid, but I've been at so many meetings and with so many different groups where the actually the language is not even common. It might be English, but it ain't, it ain't a common language at all in terms of what people mean by different terms. So universal basic income, I think, it can't, it has many merits and could, could be part of the precariousness that people have felt in terms of a social income continuance model. Uh, it, can, it can have a role, but again, are we looking at a situation where people are, are well-intentioned and in other societies take something like the minimum wage? People, I think, assume that the minimum wage is to address the primary income of a household, the primary income earner. But yet we know, in the Irish context at least, very significant proportion of minimum wage recipients live in households in the top 20% of income. Because very often, their uh, offspring of households who are the early part of their career or their second income um, partners in, in, in arrangements who are somewhat dabbling in the labor market um, in terms of providing uh, a, a, a vocational aspect in, in volunteerism, but that often requires that people um, are formalized. And so might be willing to do it for nothing, but actually are required to receive some payment and often that will happen at a minimum wage. So these are the type of issues I think that rather than making these kind of lazy straw persons, we, we should uh, dive a little bit deeper. My concerns about the universal basic income is that it won't be um, sufficient for those who actually need it and it'll be a stipendant for those who don't. And that, again, is not um, against the principle, but it's actually to see how it would work uh, in practice. So just very conscious of time, I think I'll leave that. The, the rest of the, my remarks are, are in the paper, but I do think that there is a time now for a social dialogue, a new social compact. It won't be centralized wage bargaining, but it will be related to the wage bill, and it will be, re be related to the mechanism that is our social insurance fund, because Anybody can see that all of these pushes for sick pay, for additional leaves, they're all contingent liabilities on the wage bill. Um, and so if they keep coming uncoordinated, very quickly the wage bill goes up uh, and competitiveness will uh, come under strain at some point along the way. Better to know what you're buying in a negotiated outcome than have these things just coming out of private members' bills um, day in, day out, without anybody doing the adding up and its overall cost to employers. Thanks, Mick. You're on mute. <laughs> no, I hit the wrong button. Thanks very much, Danny. Thank you very much for that and uh, for some excellent timekeeping as well under the circumstances. Next up, we have Patricia King. Patricia is the General Secretary of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. She's a former Vice President of SIPTU and also served as one of the two Vice Presidents of Congress a full-time official with SIPTU for over 25 years. She was the first woman to serve as a National Officer of the Union when she was appointed Vice President in May of 2010. Patricia, the floor is yours. 
Uh, thank you very much, Mick. Uh, thank you for that. And so from this, I will take you through this presentation. And um, effectively, um, I, I want to thank you for the uh, opportunity. We can go to the next slide. I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, make this presentation to you. Uh, ICTU is an all-island body um, representing about uh, 700,000 members across both economies. And um, that in itself uh, gives us a very good insight into um, the differences and similarities between the two jurisdictions in relation to workers. Um, despite the financial downturn in 2009 and, and the subsequent drop in employment, um, but contrary to some of the Actually, trade union move, uh, membership has grown uh, by almost 18.8% um, between 2016 and 2019. Now, the reason I make that point is because um, obviously there's a very high density of trade union membership in the public sector and in the state bodies and so on. The private sector, uh, the membership density isn't as high, but it suits some narratives uh, out there. Um, and has done over the last number of years to try and effectively take us away from that pitch altogether. But my judgment is that those trends underpin the credibility of uh, the movement as a, as a national player. So then moving on then to the uh, current economic and social context. Uh, well, we all know we have COVID-19 and it has caused unprecedented disruption to society and uh, wreaked havoc really on our economy. And Danny has made reference to uh, a lot of the measures that have been put in place uh, to deal with that. Now, we obviously have some hope in relation to the vaccine, but I, I would say that there is a, a bit of time left still for this virus to do uh, considerable damage before the vaccine takes account of it. So that's one backdrop. The other one is that um, in this uh, pandemic, we have very, very clearly, you know, people now are in a position where they've had a different outlook uh, than they may have had in the past in relation to who our essential workers are and the fact that they are often undervalued and underpaid. And I think that's certainly one of the lessons that has been learned. So alongside that backdrop, we have the no deal Brexit, uh, which is on the horizon. Again, very crucial discussions going on this week as we speak. Uh, what the outcome is, certainly it doesn't seem anybody's prepared publicly to guess anyway. So we don't know whether we get a deal or not, but this has the potential to cause a great deal of further damage uh, in particular sectors. And that, of course, uh, will result in, in further unemployment um, unless we can find solutions uh, to, to that. Now, um, Apart from and, and the high borrowing levels and so on, forced really by virtue of this pandemic in the main, um, the future landscape, as I've said, looks like uh, the high unemployment. And I think young people are going to be a very significant segment of that uh, unemployed uh, cohort of people. And I think that's going to be a particular challenge and, and it'll have uh, severe societal and economic uh, ramifications. So then on, on, on the next one, we're saying that 
um, Congress is advocating, and you can see the chain, the, the difference in the description between Danny and myself, a new social contract is what we're looking for. And we outline this in great detail in our document, No Going Back, which we published in June of this year. And I suppose the principal components of this really includes that we want uh, an income related social security system. We want that sort of um, reform. Uh, and that in the first place, we have to resolve the issues around sick pay, issues relating to pensions and so on. And um, I would say, I'm not going to go into any major detail, but I don't disagree with the points that Danny has made in relation to the UBI. I mean, there are good uh, parts and good points and merits to it, but there are also obviously other very um, challenging issues around the UBI. And, and it's not something that we would immediately be advocating. We want a reform to maybe happen in a different uh, way. We certainly want a universal single tier health system um, and so that we can have a health system that responds to the needs of its people, not based on how much money you have, but based on uh, it, it, equality of access uh, for all who need to use it. Um, also, an investment programme in public housing that ensures that anybody who wants and needs a home has one by right. Now, uh, that word right is obviously covered off in the programme for government where they have conceded that they will have a referendum on that. We have to be very careful about that referendum. We have to make sure that it delivers what it says on the tin. And um, if it does, in my judgment, if we have that right um, as part of the constitution, it will be a game changer in terms of how uh, the state actually deals at the moment with the housing issue. Um, and and we can, I can develop on that if, if anybody wants to. We have a very deficient early childcare system at the moment, uh, both in terms of its access, uh, in terms of uh, the pay people workers have working in the sector and indeed the costs to workers who need to access the uh, system. So uh, the state uh, continuously make the claim now that they're paying 70% of the cost of childcare. Um, and it's interesting that uh, those who are using childcare don't feel that and uh, Certainly the workers who are in the uh, childcare sector have not seen anything like, remotely like, a, a decent wage working in that sector. So that has to be repaired. The sustainable green economy uh, through a just transition. And might I just add there that our judgment is when we make that statement, uh, we should include farmers in that because uh, where the Paris Agreement and indeed its predecessors were very clear where people have to reform how they um, derive their income and so on and have to make, they are entitled to do this through a just transition. Now we've had a bad experience in recent past in relation to the Bordnemona debacle and uh, we, the state has not covered itself in glory in terms of how those workers have been uh, dealt with. Uh, um, so the experience to date is not good uh, and the experience in terms of the workers, the workers have never uh, ever raised any issue about what they had to do in terms of the sustainable green economy, but they have paid a price and, and the just transition was to take account of all of that and it hasn't 
uh, seep through. And I have personal experience of that because I've represented those workers um, on many, many occasions. Um, what we need to see in labour market terms is we have to see an end to the polarised labour market with the low pay endemic in certain sectors. And we know who those sectors are and, and how they operate. And, you know, we have to find remedies for the scourges of uh, the precarious work practices, such as bogus self-employment. And fundamentally, we have to get to a place where uh, people earn a decent day's pay for a decent day's work. And we are nowhere near that. And we have the state upholding employers in terms of paying low wages. The state has to, in order to exclude um, deprivation, in, in have to uh, provide a lot of uh, state money. And low pay does cost the state money. And when this economy is humming outside of pandemic and no Brexit, uh, we were still paying uh, three quarters of a billion euro every year to keep people um, from certain levels of deprivation. Uh, and that was the state, state in that way upholding um, low pay. And, and those workers who are doing those jobs would far prefer to be fair, uh, earning a decent rate of pay for the work that they're doing. So at the moment, we, our legislation is very deficient in relation to how workers can exercise their voice. There's no entitlement to representation, trade unions, and their ability to collectively bargain. Fundamentally, uh, the manner in which we operate in this country is you can get it if the employer agrees it. If they don't, you won't. And that's a really imbalanced way to do our business. And we've had several, as we know, High Court and Supreme Court challenges in relation to all that. And Danny is right. That's why, um, based on some uh, moves that are made afoot in Europe, that is why we need to have uh, an adult conversation about this. So how can we achieve this new social contract? Well, our judgment is that social dialogue is central to this. And... Um, you know, all the big issues like who would pay for the changes, um, all these very basic fundamental questions should be part of that dialogue. And we know that the government in the current government in their program um, set out that they recognize the importance of regular and open engagement with all sectors of society. And they commit to strengthening existing mechanisms such as NESC and the LEAF to create new models of sectoral engagement. So, they also mentioned that the role of the Oireachtas in the government and policy formation should be uh, fully reflected. And I think this can often reflect an unstated but widely shared concern that social dialogue usurps the policy making and political processes. Um, and I myself believe that this can reflect really a lack of clarity about what we want or what we don't want from social dialogue because we don't have any interest in usurping the role of the policy developers or indeed uh, the political um, system. But at the moment, what we have is we have LEAF, as Danny has mentioned, which deals mainly with labour market issues, labour rights, uh, employment rights, disputes and other matters that might arise over the time and maybe the other ancillary issues that we, ha he ha we have referred to, um, such as the housing and the social protection and so on. But it, so far in LEAF, the LEAF structure has been quite deficient in terms of 
dealing with those um, ancillary matters, hasn't really dealt with them at all, hasn't come out, hasn't really affected any change. So we've, we've already told the system that we think um, the current leaf process is not uh, providing us with the avenue to, to do what it is we, we need to do. So from our point of view, um, you, you ask yourself the question, what should the social dialogue model look like? And there are, of course, many views on that. The ILO, uh, the European Treaties, the European Pillar of Social Rights, even the OECD, they have all outlined definitions of what they believe uh, it should be. But in our view, um, it must, any social dialogue model that you have must involve all those who have a stake in the outcomes of economic and social policies. And these representative organizations must have an opportunity to influence and shape uh, current and future policies. Um, and that's why we think it has to be really succinct as to what are you doing there? What are you in this process for? Uh, and we don't want a system of uh, centralized pay bargaining. That was attached to the previous social partnership model. And we're certainly not advocating that in this scenario. So uh, from our point of view, the um, labor market issues, a restructured leaf should uh, deal with these matters. And uh, I think the current structure of leaf needs to be um, re reformed, reconfigured, uh, made stronger, but uh, it shouldn't um, be dismantled. We have the uh, National Economic and Social Council, which in our view provides a really excellent forum for the development of in-depth policies. They do very good work. A lot of us who are on this call are involved in it, but there isn't any point in having that organization developing all those in-depth policies and then everybody, um, the policy developers going along and ignoring it. So from our point of view is we need to enhance its role and we need to uh, have central engagement strengthened. So from our perspective, how policy and political processes respond will determine whether we are achieving this new social contract and whether the same people will be left behind in our society. So from in, in conclusion, I would just say that um, post-pandemic world will be different. Danny has made some references, how we work, even how we go to work uh, will be different. Uh, the opportunity to shape and develop a more equal economy and society, I think, is there for us. Uh, key world leaders have a more progressive narrative. Uh, Ursula van der Leyen, you have, would have heard her in her State of the Union address, uh, work must pay. Uh, she's also been, in, I suppose, one of the instigators, if not the main instigator, of putting forward the EU directive on, on the minimum wage and uh, collective bargaining. Uh, President-elect Biden, in his uh, address, marshalling the forces of decency, fairness and hope. Now, they are very different narratives to what we've heard in, in, in the years uh, previously. And there is hope lies in there. So my, my judgment is that we have a lot of challenges. We have economic challenges. We have societal challenges. We have a virus challenge. We have a Brexit challenge but we also have an opportunity. And I think we should grab the opportunity uh, through a workable, uh, inclusive social dialogue, and we should deliver a new contract where nobody is left behind 
and everybody has a fair and equal opportunity. Thank you, uh, Chair. Thanks very much for that, Patricia. Thank you for that presentation. Next up, we have uh, Damien MacDonald. Damien was appointed Director General of the Irish Farmers Association in January 2017. Prior to that, he was Chief Executive Officer of Horse Sport Ireland, the governing body for that, the, that sport. And he was Chief Executive of Macro and Affirma from 2001 to 2007. Damien, it's over to you. Damien, are you mute? I'm mute, but I'm here now, yeah. I think. You're right. Thanks. Great. Off you go. Thanks. A couple of I can see my own screen. I have to go back one, I think, there. Anyway, I know I'm okay. Okay, well, um, thank you very much um, for the invitation to uh, address the seminar today in the first instance. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting topic, I think. So I'm just getting the screen set up there and see if it works okay. You, can you see the screen there, Mick? Okay, so just, I suppose, a quick background, first of all, on agriculture as my first slide there, that 6.7% of gross national income come, comes from agriculture. Agri-food exports have reached 14.5 billion in, in 2019. Direct employment is uh, over 160,000 uh, people. While that's seven point one percent of the to of total employment, it's a, it's it's more influential, obviously, in the regions where it's eleven percent of regional employment. The average farm size in Ireland nationally is is still only thirty four hectares. The average number of cattle per herd is sixty six, and the average dairy herd size is size is approximately uh, ninety cows. So, I hope my screen will move on there now. Apologies there now, my next screen isn't moving. Colette, you're not there, are you? I am, if you want me to replace your worry. screen with mine. It's just not running for some reason. Um, I, don't I know can share I... my screen instead, Damien, if that's all right. Apologies, yeah, yeah, uh, well, yeah, that's okay. Can you take me back or do I need to opt out there? Yeah, that's okay, I can take you back. Apologies, no. Sorry about that, man. I don't know why it won't. Uh, it's just not running to the next slide. Now, maybe there's another that's, way. That's all right. The vagaries of the, the medium we have to use these days. Yeah, I practice. <laughs> are you okay there, Colette? You can take me back, can you? Will I, do I need to opt out here? Are you okay? No, you're grand. I can take you. I'm just getting your, sli your slides up. That's up. Well, I'll stop sharing then in a sec, yeah. Great. I'm pressing a few other buttons here, but they're not working. <laughs> no worries. There we go. Sorry now, Mick, I'm wasting a minute of your time now as well. And you're, time you're all right, don't worry, Damon. These things happen. We look, we're, we're I'll, I'll actually, I'll just keep talking, right? A little bit. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, okay, so I have to ask you, Colette, to move me on. Is that it? Sure. It's literally a roll at their Colette scenario, is it? <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm sure it's not the first time you heard that one, but anyway, it was too good an opportunity to miss. Okay, so look, if you can go to the third slide, which is the map of Ireland there. 
Uh, yeah, so that just gives you a regional breakdown of agriculture in Ireland. I won't dwell on that. And the next slide then is on social partnership. And just to mention that, um, obviously there was a full farming pillar in the, in the original social partnership. Uh, we're now part of the National Economic Dialogue. And um, I think everybody involved in that would find it you know, much less engaged than the original social partnership. Uh, it's pretty much a box ticking exercise in, in my view. And, and there are politicians around the table as well who in my view, uh, you know, tend to dominate it to some degree. I think, I think one of the things we've lost from the old model of social partnership is that while there was a lot of emphasis on the engagement of the pillars with government, and, you know, I think Patricia and Danny, to a lesser extent, has referred there to, you know, this perception that it had too much power and was usurping uh, legislators and so on. But I think one of the things we've lost is the, is the interaction between the pillars, which I think of itself, both formally and informally, uh, was, was, is something that we've really missed. Um, and that's one of the points I want to build on here. So my screen has now gone blank altogether, Colette. Hello. I just can't see the next slide now, and it is a graphic there. So the next slide should be on viability. Okay, it's back there. So look, I just want to use the opportunity we have here just to maybe touch on a few of the challenges facing agriculture. And the first one is to look at the viability of Irish farming. And as you can see from the graph there, about a third of farmers are currently viable. If you're sustainable, your farm has been maintained to off-farm income. And if you're vulnerable, you, you're, you, you have a very low income on the farm and you have no off-farm income either. So it's a third, a third, a third. So the next slide uh, shows the breakdown in terms of sectors. And this is another significant challenge for agriculture. And as you, as you can see there, the blue line on top represents the portion of dairy farmers who are viable the green line tillage farmers, the black line is the average, and then the purple and red lines are sheep and cattle. And you can see from that that there is a huge disparity between sectors in agriculture in that, you know, a lot more dairy farmers are, are, are viable than any other sector. And that's what's driven to, to, to uh, almost entirely driven the move uh, we see into dairy expansion and more, more dairy farms and farmers exiting cattle farming and to, to a lesser degree tillage farming and sheep farming and moving into, into dairying. And that's a challenge for the agri-sector as well because it makes it more difficult for us as a representative organisation to keep it all together as well in that in the, a disparity uh, reduces cohesion amongst the sector. So the next slide then deals with, um, uh, I, I, I suppose to expand on my presentation a bit, this uh, shows food prices in Ireland uh, from 2008 to 2019. And if you look at the green part of the bar chart, it shows clearly that in each of the last six years, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 and 19, food prices in Ireland have actually fallen in each of the last six years. And uh, while that has, um, you can move to the next slide now, Colette, while that has and here is, is the distribution in terms of household income. So if you look at the top line in terms of what households are spending on food, in 1980, households were spending 27.7%, as you can see, on food. That figure is now in 2015, 2016, for this comparative purposes, that's now down to 14.7 and, and is continuing to decline. So 
Next one now, Kate, Colette. So you can see there the implications of that are, okay, it benefits households in the short to medium term, obviously because it allows them to have more disposable income to spend on other uh, commodities, but it is not sustainable. And as we see with only 34% of farmers in Ireland now viable, and it's forcing farmers to get bigger to remain viable. And also we saw that, which came to light during the summer, some, the working conditions in the meat processing sector as well are, are certainly far from ideal. And what's happening is the reduction in the retail price is just pushing down on the rest of the sector and reducing the ability of those sectors to earn a return from what they do. And what you're seeing is both in the processing sector and at farmer level, uh, we've seen consolidation and people getting bigger running faster to stand still in terms of what they can earn. And that's the reality uh, faced by most farmers. So the next one now, Colette, is, so what does all this mean, I suppose, looking at food security? So Europe uh, is a high cost economy. It's a higher cost to produce food in, in Europe than it is in many other continents. But I would be of the view that food security is taken for granted in Europe. Now we saw a few maybe uh, signs of of the sort of fear that could grip uh, people with the food shortages in the early part of COVID, when people were unwilling to cross borders with food. And even maybe during the snow, when you know there was a, when we saw a few empty shelves from bread and so on. And I know it became a bit of a joke at the time, but it shows, I think, with the just-in-time delivery system we have, how susceptible our food chain is uh, to disruption if anything goes wrong. And, but I, and I think not enough emphasis is being given to ensuring that we have a safe supply of food within Europe ourselves. Only about 40% of the, of the world's land can be used for agriculture, and only a third of this is suitable for arable crops. So it's clear that we need to keep farmers on the land, and the question is, have we an attractive proposition for the next generation of farmers? Go ahead. So this just quickly to look at this gives you a distribution of the of farmers in Ireland. And you can see we only have 6% of farmers uh, under 35. And there are, there are more farmers uh, over 80 than under 35 in Ireland. That's the reality of what we face. So go ahead, Colette. So the question then is, well, what's sustaining, if you look at, at the moment, what's sustaining farmers at the moment? And Farmers are very dependent in Ireland on direct payments. And I might just dwell on this uh, chart for a second or this table for a second, because it has, it, if you take, it, what the table does is take the all figure at the bottom. It's the amount of direct payments uh, on average per farm and the total family farm income and the percentage of the family farm income that's contributed by direct payments. So if you look at the total line at the bottom, you'll see that 18,000 euro is the average direct payment, but the average family farm income is 23,000. And that makes up 77% of family farm income. But if you look at the three rows above that, let's take one, take cattle rearing as your example, your classic suckler farmer, uh, which tends to be based on the Western seaboard. The direct payments they're receiving on average is 14,700, but their total family farm income is 9,000. So 160% of their income comes from direct payments. Those farmers, along with sheep farmers and the other uh, category, other cattle category, they're actually eating into their own money by, by farming. 
if they, they could retain more of the direct payment if they stopped farming. And that's a significant challenge for us in terms of trying to maintain a productive agriculture in those parts of the country. So go ahead, Colette, we'll try the next one. So, so the common agricultural policy, it shows the dependence of farming in Ireland on the common agricultural policy, particularly in the cattle, sheep and cattle lower categories. So cattle and sheep farmers are on average are loss making. They're actually, as I said, eating into the direct payments. And these losses are being funded by CAP and in, which is not depicted on it, is off-farm income. Again, there's lots of farmers being sustained by off-farm income. But if you looked at their farming activity in its purest form, it's not profitable. There are a chronic lack of successors on cattle and sheep farmers. And the next generation of farmers will take more detached decisions. I mean, we have a, a, a very a strong attachment to the land in Ireland, but you, there are other opportunities of what people can do with the land, you know, in, in the modern world. And people, the next generation will be more detached about that. So the original purpose of the CAP was to support farmers to produce food, but CAP is a diminishing part of the EU budget and there are increasing requirements placed on farmers to draw down their, their funds. So the next issue then is looking at uh, just, that's just a depiction of the percentage of the overall EU budget now spent on CAP. And as you can see, it's diminishing significantly from about 55% in the 88 to 92 period down to only about 30% in, in the next seven years based on what's proposed there now. So we can go to the next one, please. Now, I'll dwell on this one for a second as well, because it's a busy graph, but it depicts the changes in common agricultural policy since 1990. And if you look at the 1990 bar, uh, it tells you that most of the supports in the original cap were built into the price. So it was export refunds and other market supports Typically, intervention uh, was was export refunds, aids to private storage, but intervention was the was was a key part of it. So, and if you look now, say just skipping up to twenty twenty, and look up the make the makeup of the cap payments today, you'd see a very small amount is now related to market related expenditure. The blue bit tells you that it's coupled direct payments. So again, only less than twelve percent of the payments are linked to production. So you don't have to produce to get the payment. And again, that would worry me for the future in terms of output from agriculture uh, based on how the cap is designed. Decoupled direct payments are the green bit. And the green bit then with the shading on it are, is greening, which are payments linked to environmental conditions. And the purple bit then is the total rural development expenditure. And again, the percentage of the rural development expenditure that are linked to climate. So it's a very, very different common agricultural policy now than it was in 1990. And the proposals which are on the table now, which look are, are a cause of, of certainly a lot of public debate at European level, uh, will, will, will further increase the shaded areas there, albeit not by as much maybe as some would like, but it will certainly be, be more and be deeper than what's there at the moment. That's the trend. And uh, I think everybody recognizes that, that that trend is going to continue in future caps. So next um, one, please, Colette. So again, this is just a depiction again from the OECD in terms of what the annual growth in demand for key commodity foods. And if you take meat and fresh dairy, you can see that there, are, there, that those, there will be increased demand for both of those products, the, the two main items we produce in Ireland. 
and it's broken down there. The blue bit is the bit that's due to population growth and the green bit is the bit that's due to per capita uh, demand growth. So you can see global demand, obviously with the global population going to increase significantly between now and 2050, there will be a demand, increased demand for all food, food groups. Um, you might have some substitution from one food group to another, but uh, there's still going to be increased demand. Okay, got it, thank you. So the next slide I just put in again in terms of food, global food security and the, the, a real concern that I would have about us incentivizing people to stop production or reduce production. This graph shows the cultivated land per capita in the world in, 20, in 2000 and what it's projected to be in 2050. The blue uh, chart is what it is in 2000 and the green chart is, is 2050. And as you can see, with the exception of Eastern Europe and the Russian Federation, the per capita uh, amount of cultivated land available is due to reduce quite significantly on, on every continent. And that poses huge challenges for us in terms of being able to produce enough food to feed an expanding uh, global uh, population. So the next slide then um, just deals with, I suppose, to get specific for a second on the EU Green Deal, which is currently, uh, it's been mentioned a number of times today already. And the EU farm to fork and biodiversity strategies, they're very ambitious in terms of what they want to achieve, but it must be balanced with increased funding. They, they, will, they will put uh, the farm to fork and biodiversity strategies, whether we like it or not, they will cause increased costs of production. Um, and already the USDA have done a study on this. Ironically, the European Union haven't finished theirs yet. And the, the, it shows a significant increase in costs. So one of the theories in the, or in the um, farm to fork strategy is that, you know, if we, if we have more organic farms and we reduce pesticides use and so on, we'll get an increased return from the market. And that has failed to materialize uh, in, 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 throughout recent history. Um, that there's been any increased return for farmers for producing a higher standard of product. The experience has been quite the contrary. You do more for less. And I, I, the, the phrase I best use to describe it is that today's premium product becomes tomorrow's commodity. And it's not a premium product for long in, in, in today's marketplace. So I think a key issue for all of us here for to move forward with some sort of shared vision for this between farmers and environmentalists is we must understand what the full impact of implementing these policies will be. It's very easy to set targets and ambitious targets and flag wave about those, but what are the consequences? Because the reality is someone is going to have to pay for this and there's only three people who can pay. It's, go, it's the EU or the government, the pub, public policy pays for it, the, the consumer pays for it, or the farmer pays for it. And based on all experience to date, uh, the, the cap budget is, is falling, uh, the, the consumer will not pay and the way the retail sector is structured won't let them pay because of the intense competition you have here. And, and we can have another debate about whether it's desirable whether they should pay or not. The person who's been paying all along is the farmer. And that's what's created such concern in terms of where the, the, the thing is going. So in terms of the next slide then, reducing emissions. And I think it's accepted we have to reduce emissions. I, I, you, you won't, I think, find a farmer anywhere that doesn't agree with that. But I think the key issue is we must have a balance between economic, environmental, and social sustainability. And I would say a key message is 
we have to focus on reducing emissions rather than reducing output. And I think we've made a mistake and it has alienated a lot of farmers to talk about reducing the national herd. We can reduce emissions uh, without doing that. And that has to be, I think, the, the, the goal. And ruinant animals are a tremendous asset on the planet, going back to feeding our populations, because they can convert grass to nutrients for human consumption. This is the ruminant animal is a tremendous machine in terms of what it does. And it's a very, very valuable um, asset to, to, to uh, the planet. And only about two thirds of agricultural land in, in, the, in the world and only 40% is agricultural is suitable for grass, only grass. It will not support the growing of crops. And there was a reference earlier to the Dust Bowl in America. And if you go back to history, it was the plowing up of grass and people trying to grow crops in areas where the soil couldn't sustain it to cause a lot of these problems. But so the goal has to be, and I think we, 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 there's a, an opportunity here to have a shared goal is we must produce more nutrients for less emissions. That has to be the goal. Like even mentions output of carbon, kilos of carbon. It's all about nutrients that we can produce. And Chagas have produced the marginal abatement cost curve, which, which we can move to the next slide, which does demonstrate that we can, we can reduce our emissions by some 15% based on um, various measures, some of which are, a lot of which are being implemented already, but we do need to focus on implementing these more to incentivize farmers to adopt uh, better technology. And the science here is moving very quickly. Um, if you look at, um, you know, there's huge developments in terms of feed additives and modern and technologies, which can substantially are very promising in terms of being able to reduce biogenic um, methane from ruminant animals by, by feed additives and other technologies that we can, that we can use. I won't go into the detail of this because of time. If we just move to the next slide for a minute. And I just wanted to, again, uh, make the point in terms of keep things in perspective about the number of cattle and sheep we have in Ireland at the moment. If you look there, say, take 1977, we had over 7 million cattle and about 3.5 million sheep. If you go to 1997, you can see that we had, uh, you know, significantly more, more cattle then than we have now. We had 7.5 million cattle and 8 million sheep. And then if you look at 2017, 2018, and 2019, in 2019, we have, we have still over the 7 million cattle, 7.2, and 5 million sheep. But you can see the number is actually, uh, is actually dropped from 2017 and 2018 in terms of the number of bovines we, we have. Um, so I just think we need to keep this in perspective. And if we could agree a shared vision to say the objective, a shared objective is to re reduce biogenic methane output per animal. That is an attainable goal. So go to my final slide then about, I suppose, to try and tie it back in a bit to the, the topic. And I called my uh, presentation Finding Common Ground because I think we can. And I think it's a great regret that environmentalists and farmers have, have ended up in some cases in, as adversaries in relation to this and an adversarial relationship has developed around it. Because I'm absolutely certain that we have far more in common than we have in difference. And on all sides, maybe some of the more extreme views that are expressed, and they tend to find their way onto the airwaves because it makes better radio and TV, uh, tend to alienate uh, the middle ground here. 
And I think there is a substantial middle ground of environmentalists and farmers, farmers who, who realize they have responsibilities and want to do more, and environmentalists who realize that farmers have to live as well. And I think the goal is if, if we can improve the environment and improve farm incomes to find that sweet spot. And, and I think that is achievable. Uh, that is achievable if we were to sit down and try and work out how we do it. We need a mature discussion about the price of food because, and, and this has obviously significant impacts for, for uh, people in low pay and, 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 and you know, in terms of affordability, all of that. And, and we need a mature discussion about it because simply the price of food consistently reducing year on year, that is not sustainable. It cannot continue. And we have to face up to that as to where we'll end up if we do that. But the, the key question is, who pays for the additional production costs? Because if we want higher environmental ambitions, it will cost more. And someone is going to have to pay for that. And at the moment, farmers feel that it's going to be them. Because in the absence of anyone else paying, they're the default uh, scenario. Because the market will make them pay, uh, will, will impose the costs, and the public, the, the, the public policy will make them pay. Because they'll up the conditions they have to meet. One other point I think where we really have a bit in common is that there are different rules for non-EU imports. And for example, if you look at issues like GMO, which again is a very, very um, uh, sensitive topic, but if we want to be able to feed the increased populations and we want to farm in a more environmentally friendly way, we are importing product into the European Union produced with GM. We can't use it here. And then we're trying to compete against that. There's not a consistency around that. And there are lots of other inconsistencies about the, 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 uh, what we apply to imports and what we apply to what we produce here. The Mercosur trade deal is a good example of where the views of farmers and environmentalists have allied uh, because I think there's been an increasing focus on what's happening in Brazil, particularly in relation to the rainforests. And again, it goes back to my area of cultivated land per capita. In a scenario where that's dropping and people need to feed people, there, that's what puts pressure on people to make more land cultivatable. The challenge for us is to try and get a better return from land that's already suitable for cultivating. We have a good supply of water in Ireland. If it's not produced here, it is going to have to be produced somewhere else because we need more food. That is an inalienable reality of the statistics and what they're telling us. So I suppose to finish up, is there room here for a new social partnership? And I was struck, you know, Danny and Patricia made points about, could we call it something different, you know? And sure, in, in all walks of life, that's often a solution. But certainly, if farmers and environmentalists had a safe space to talk about these things, and if we were in around the table at social partnership every day of the week, I think relations would have been better, and we might, have ended, we might end up in a scenario where we'd realize that we have more in common than in difference. So the question is, could a new social partnership involving farmers and environmentalists find this common ground? Um, to move us forward in a scenario where we can have, where we can improve the environment and improve farm incomes. So thank you, Chairman. Thanks very much for that, Damien. Uh, a very interesting presentation, particularly for the large numbers of people who I suppose are not au fait with the specific challenges facing farmers today. Now, our next speaker is Karen Sesielski. Karen is CEO of the Irish Environmental Network. She works to promote and advance the interlinked principles of environmental, social and economic sustainability by supporting members 
of that network. She also serves as the coordinator of the Environmental Pillar, an advocacy coalition which works to create and promote sustainable policies. Karen, over to you. Hi, thank you. And I know, Colette, you have my slides. I'll just wait for you to show the version. Okay, great. If you want to move to the next slide, Colette, that'd be great. Okay, thanks a million. Um, well, thanks so much for inviting me here today to contribute to this important discussion. I hope everyone can, can hear me okay. Um, about the need for a new social contract and what that would look like and mean for us as a society. As Mick said, I'm the CEO of the Irish Environmental Network, the umbrella network for 31 Irish national environmental NGOs. And I also serve as the coordinator of the Environmental Pillar, our advocacy coalition, which brings together environmental organizations to work collectively to advance and promote sustainable policies. We've seen public concern for the environment grow, and it's continuing to grow. We've seen young people here and around the world take to the streets in huge numbers, demanding that we, as the decision makers and stewards of their future environment, act urgently on climate breakdown. The Dáil just declared a climate and biodiversity emergency, which was a step. But now, what does that mean in terms of action and how are we people involved in those actions? Public participation lies at the heart of the social contract, which hasn't always been a given in relation to environmental decision making. Individuals and communities have always come together to organize, mobilize, and use legal mechanisms where necessary to protect their environment, working to have their voices heard whether they were formally invited to participate or not, because they care and because their environment matters to them. If we could move on to the next slide, please, Colette. Over time, the demand from the public to have a say in issues that affect them has led to the development of rights-based provisions for public participation in environmental decision-making. For example, the Lisbon Treaty affords people the right to submit a citizen's initiative to the European Commission. The Aarhus Convention has been ratified by all EU member states and must be abided by, by both the Commission and individual states. This convention gives us rights to access information, participation in decision-making, and also access to justice on environmental matters. For example, we're entitled to ask public bodies for documents on the likes of air, water, biodiversity, pollution, emissions, and waste, as well as documents linked to policies and plans that are likely to affect the environment. The Protocol on Strategic Environmental Assessment, or SEA, is also applicable in every member state and really copper fastens for public participation in SEA processes. UN Sustainable Development Goals, particularly Target 16.7, aims to ensure responsive, inclusive, participatory, and representative decision-making at all levels. Um, next slide, please. Some of the benefits of community-centered decisions which result from effective public participation include there's an improved quality of decisions that are made, particularly when local knowledge and community concerns are reflected and incorporated in the outcomes. More effective implementation of decisions with increased legitimacy and also the potential to reduce conflict. 
active and engaged communities, greater transparency and accountability, which builds trusts in decision-making processes themselves and in, in our institutions and strengthens democracy ultimately. Um, next slide, please. There are a number of ways that public participation in Ireland, in Ireland currently happens in relation to environmental decisions and frameworks that support those activities. So there are established structures like the public participation networks or PPNs. This is an important linkage to local government decision-making channels and also how they connect to national decisions. There are local environmental networks or LENs which are made up of individuals and groups with interests in a wide range of issues. They provide a central hub around which people from a given county can gather, discuss projects, ask for help, create change, and also join their PPNs if they wish. There are also deliberative processes like citizens' assemblies, which provide space for context, rich dialogue and discussion, and have had a huge impact in movements for social change. For example, in relation to marriage equality and enhanced reproductive rights. The Citizens' Assembly on Climate Action, for example, made 13 recommendations which outlined how Ireland could transform into a leader in tackling climate change. Members of the public are also um, asked to take part in consultation processes. So how this, how this happens and the processes for gathering these inputs and feedback vary widely according to the government department or body, ranging from an online survey sometimes of multiple choice questions to very detailed written submissions. And members of the public also take part in town hall events and dialogues, roundtables and seminars to learn more about particular initiatives, ask questions and provide direct feedback to public bodies. Also, the environmental pillar uh, was established as an independent national social partner in 2009 as a way to involve civil society in public debate and policymaking. And finally, representatives of civil society are often invited to join consultative committees and advisory bodies to advise and develop policies in relation to the natural environment. Uh, next slide, please. So though I've just described lots of ways which the public can engage and participate in, in environmental decision-making processes, there are weaknesses with the current models, including firstly, there's quite a low level of general awareness and information among the public about how to get involved in decision-making. And while citizens' assemblies have proven to be fantastic opportunities for rich discussion, understanding, and consensus building, we need to develop and facilitate models which encourage a similar level of debate and dialogue in other fora, including locally and regionally. Also, it's important to note that while the outputs and recommendations of citizens' assemblies can inform and influence policymaking, they're not binding. Uh, persistent barriers for marginalized communities to participate fully in decision-making processes remain, and they have to be addressed through ways of working which are inclusive and accessible by design right through to implementation. And the COVID pandemic has exacerbated inequalities in, in relation to participation, particularly in uh, when we're looking at high quality broadband and the availability of it, as we've seen a shift to online events and processes. 
There's also no set rule around timeframes for consultations. As a result, we generally see um, timescales which are too short and which lead to challenges in obtaining proper feedback and engagement. There's also a lack of consistency about where to find information, how to participate, and the formats and nature of, of how we input. Inadequate resourcing prevents wide-scale engagement and it limits contributions. We need to close the feedback loop. So when individuals, community groups, and NGOs make submissions, they need to be kept informed about where that feedback goes and the impact that their contributions have made to, to finished policy documents. That will also prevent consultation fatigue. The public should also be able to provide input and comments and have due account taken of them at an early enough stage of decision-making when all options are still open on whether the proposed activity should go ahead at all, referred to as the zero option. So this is special significance if the proposed activity might be of high risk or if there are unknown potential environmental impacts which may result from a specific action. And finally, public dialogue events can be more one way in nature as opposed to allowing for genuine discussion and knowledge exchange among stakeholders. Um, we've seen as events have moved online as well, the prevalence of, of pre-selected questions is emerging as a potential barrier to a full and rich debate about issues of importance. And next slide, please, Colette. So though there are agreements and obligations which protect our access to environmental justice, there's always a threat that these rights will be weakened or diminished. For example, the heads of the Housing and Planning Bill 2019 raised serious concerns among environmentalists, lawyers, and community groups. The bill would limit the ability of, of communities and individuals to access the courts to challenge planning decisions with a requirement around legal standing and stipulated that groups would need to have been in existence for three years before enacting proceedings. This is particularly problematic as very often neighbors and communities may coalesce around specific issues which have arisen in their local area. Further, the heads of bill raised concerns that groups would need to have a minimum number of members before they could access justice, as well as the risk of incurring substantial costs if they challenged planning decisions in the courts. So this is in direct conflict with rights guaranteed under the Aarhus Convention, including the right to access justice that is fair, equitable, timely, and not prohibitively expensive. There was also a significant procedural issue with the consultation process. The timeframe for submissions um, provided only 23 working days, many of which fell during the traditional Christmas holiday period to submit detailed and constructive feedback on a bill which would squarely reduce the ability of individuals and groups to have a say in the future. Following pressure from groups, opposition politicians and committee members the deadline for comment was extended um, and concerned citizens and groups made submissions to highlight their concerns with the bill. So what are the next steps? Um, well, concerned groups will be ready to take part in advocacy and awareness raising activities once the bill is presented for pre-legislative scrutiny, focusing on the extent to which our submissions and feedback have had an impact on ensuring that the rights of communities and individuals to access environmental justice remain protected and enshrined. 
Uh, next slide, please, Colette. So I'm going to spend a few moments talking about a current example of public participation and how it relates to food policy, as Ireland's next agri-food strategy, the successor to FoodWise 2025, will have wide-ranging effects on livelihoods, rural communities, and our environment. The voice of the public in getting the strategy right is critical from the outset and right through to implementation and evaluation. The strategy will play a fundamental role in addressing the climate and biodiversity emergency over the next decade and will have an impact on every community in the country. It will act as a key policy driver during what is a critical time for action and it must be based on principles of sustainability operating within ecological limits if we are to succeed in achieving our climate and biodiversity targets. It also must support farmers in adapting to new practices while also ensuring that they receive fair prices for the production of healthy and nutritious food. Indicators show that trends for greenhouse gas emissions, biodiversity loss and water quality are all heading in the wrong, in the wrong direction and need to be reversed. The figure below shows the overall breakdown of our greenhouse gas emissions by sector according to EPA data. And we see that nearly 34% of emissions are currently coming from the agriculture sector. Um, next slide, please, Colette. So when we look at biodiversity and water quality as well, we see that two thirds of Ireland's regularly occurring wild bird species are either red or amber listed as birds of conservation concern and one-third of our 99 wild bee species are threatened with extinction. And some of the reasons for those declines include loss of habitats through conversion to intensive farmland, as well as forestry, and the loss of flowering plants as a food source, as well as pesticide use. We also see water quality showing a decline in, in Ireland from 2013 to 2019, with now only 53% of Ireland's surface water bodies having a satisfactory water quality. Um, and you know, key pressures on water quality are agriculture and forestry. Next slide, please. So the role and the voice of the public in developing and implementing this strategy cannot be understated. As such, there have been opportunities for individuals and communi communities to feed into the process at different points. So first, there, um, the Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine launched an online survey as part of its initial consultation phase. Nearly 60% of responses were from primary producers, so farmers and fishers, fishers and 56% were from those working in or representing the agriculture sector. Protecting biodiversity, water and climate came second and third to ensuring safe and healthy food in the responses. Environmental sustainability also ranked as the number one concern for processors as consumers are demanding this. What we see from these results is that the overwhelming majority of people who shared their views want practices and policies that are sustainable. The department also held a public engagement event to exchange views and information, which was a step in the right direction to bring together a broad range of stakeholders. One seat on the 31-person stakeholder committee was given to environmental NGOs to advise and, and, and advise on the strategy. Due to the breadth of wide-ranging issues to consider regarding climate, biodiversity, and water quality, 
best practice would have been to broaden the representation of those voices and also allow civil society to select our own representatives in this forum. A public consultation on the scoping element of the SCA process was launched in August with a deadline for responses set for the 8th of September. So environmental groups once again cited the tight time frame, which again fell during a holiday period and, and we were granted an extension for that. And what are the steps, the next steps for public participation? The strategy, the draft strategy is expected to be published this year as stated in the program for government alongside the environmental assessment documents. And these will all be open for public consultation as civil society will be calling for a process that is inclusive, accessible, transparent, and also accountable. We'll be measuring the impact of public participation by looking at the extent to which members of the public's views have been taken into account. Um, next slide, please. So what we need really is a new roadmap which empowers communities and strengthens the decisions and the processes that we use. As we work towards a just recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic and turn commitments into real action on climate breakdown and biodiversity loss, we must put people and communities at the center of decision-making through deliberative processes that are participative, open, and conclusive at all stages if we are really to ensure that no one is left behind. We need to engage, inform, and build trust, particularly among the most marginalized communities and individuals, and adopt new ways of working as we move towards a, new, a more sustainable future. We need appropriate levels of funding and resourcing to actively encourage awareness, engagement, and participation. Barriers per, to participation need to be mitigated, for example, around literacy, mobility, and geographic location when designing and implementing these processes. We need sufficient timeframes for all stages, which include time for, includes time for taking due account of the outcomes and also provisions for the zero option. Policy making must be open, inclusive and transparent with widely accessible information sharing and also consistent frameworks for participation. We need to close the feedback loop ensuring that people know what happens to their submissions and views after they share them. We need to ensure that civil society can choose our own representatives in official fora, encouraging active citizenship and also robust decision-making. And finally, we need to harness the knowledge and expertise available in local communities throughout the country by reinvigorating and resourcing appropriately the PPNs, which can and should play a much bigger role in decision-making. Um, thanks, Colette. That's, that's you, Karen, that's, excuse me, sir, I wasn't sure what I was moving on to. Karen, thank you very much for that. Um, again, a very insightful presentation. And it gives us all a very different perspective on the environmental aspect of what um, should hopefully be involved in some form of social dialogue. What exact shape that is to take, as I say, we must all wait and see. And perhaps the next speaker, I would suggest, may have some ideas on that. That, of course, is Dr. Sean Healy, 
for those of you who may not know him, and I'm sure you're very few out there, he's the CEO of Social Justice Ireland for more than 30 years. He's been active on issues of socioeconomic policy in this country. Before that, he worked for more than 10 years in Africa. He's done work with the European Commission, the Council of Europe, the European Economic and Social Council, and the United Nations. Currently, he is a member of Ireland's National Economic and Social Council. Sean, over to you. Thank you, Mick. Thank you. Um, thanks to Connect for loading up the slides as well. Uh, in the same way that a flash of lightning can suddenly illuminate a night sky and reveal details of the landscape that might not otherwise have been seen, so COVID-19 has lit up parts of Ireland's economic and social fabric which have been neglected up to now. Now, that neglect may not have been intended. However, once it has been seen, it cannot again be unseen. If it is neglected subsequently, then such neglect is culpable. For much of the 20th century, the primary focus of government policy has been on promoting economic growth. This was the means that would allow governments and society to achieve what they wanted, and it was the metric by which governments would be judged as successful or not. Uh, new research suggests that the relationship between economic growth and social outcomes is much more complex. Social exclusion, poverty and inequality are not the result of poor economic performance, but are actually factors that can retard economic progress. They are causes and not just effects. Ireland has been I've seen some very notable positives in recent years, and it's important to acknowledge these. They've been acknowledged already by some other speakers, but I myself would point to economic growth, which has been exceptional. Unemployment fell dramatically until the start of COVID. Our population growth has been steady, and it ensures that Ireland's dependency ratio is much more positive than most of its peer countries in the EU 15. At the same time, however, uh, these very positive developments have been accompanied by others which call into question Ireland's social uh, uh, contract between the citizen and the state. The lightning flash clarity produced by the COVID pandemic has convinced many people of what they already suspected. That is that serious consideration needs to be given to the failures that have consistently dogged Ireland's approach to policy and decision-making in recent decades. The experience of COVID-19 has highlighted major challenges being faced by Irish society. Challenges for people in low paid employment, for people in the social welfare system who find themselves, for example, uh, with no increases in their core payments uh, in two for two budgets in a row. Uh, likewise, the levels of homelessness and insufficient supply of social housing are obviously quite serious uh, negatives, if you like and that, that's been referred to already as well. The lack of an effective broadband system across the country is obviously a very, a, another example of the country's infrastructure deficit, uh, which was highlighted in the pandemic. Uh, the society's failure to effectively address the growing levels of inequality and deprivation, again, do attention to the fundamental failures of, very rich, of a very rich society, which we are, our failure to make the adjustments required to ensure everyone had the basics required to live life with dignity. In the area of services of particular significance during the pandemic was the obvious inadequacy of the two-tier healthcare system. While the healthcare personnel responded heroically 
to the challenges presented, there was no hiding from the fact that many vulnerable people were not as well served as their better off fellow citizens. The lack of an adequate supply of childcare is another such example, and it has major implications for addressing issues such as unemployment and uh, the various points that were made earlier on by other speakers as well. Ireland's pattern of going from boom to bust to boom to bust has become a, a serious concern as well. And it has led people to ask questions about why this pattern has to be repeated over and over and over again. Why can't we break it? Now, at a governance level, more and more people are questioning why they have no real voice in shaping the decisions that impact on them. Uh, there would be widespread support, it seems to us in Social Justice Ireland, for a new social contract focused on delivering a society with a thriving economy, decent services and infrastructure, just taxation, good governance and sustainability. That's what we have proposed. Basically that those five items should be given priority and that they be worked on simultaneously. So the government, the priority of the society, priorities would be to build a thriving economy, decent services and infrastructure, just taxation, good governance and sustainability. Most people would agree that uh, those five outcomes would be well, uh, would do go a long way towards addressing the, the issues that I've just been pointing out. But they should be focused on simultaneously, a point that Colette Bennett was making earlier on in the second session. A thriving economy cannot be built without decent services and infrastructure, without just taxation, without good governance, and without sustainability at its core. So these five outcomes must be addressed simultaneously. You can't build an economy without doing the other four simultaneously. And I think that's part of the reason, in, in fact, that we have gone from boom to bust and back, and back again. A new vision is required, one that challenges all citizens to be the best that they can be. A vision that provides for everybody's well-being by protecting the environment on which we all depend. Business as usual is not an option. Neither is returning to the old normal. I'm going to focus on a few particular issues, starting with the distribution of resources. Ireland's macroeconomic situation continues to improve with each release of national income figures from the CSO. Employment continues to rise at an impressive rate, or at least it did up to the start of COVID, and long-term unemployment was at its lowest in a decade. Yet despite the economic gains of recent years, and before adjusting for the negative impacts of the pandemic, Ireland continued to trade our other Western European counterparts in terms of service delivery and infrastructure investment. As a result, a deficit, a deficit has emerged between Ireland and our peer countries in the EU15. It should not need stating that this deficit cannot be closed without increasing our current levels of public investment. The budget 2021 seems to have taken a decisive step in the right direction in this regard. The profile of Ireland's population I mentioned earlier is changing, and this also requires a bespoke policy response from government. Policymakers must acknowledge that a thriving economy is not a goal in itself, but a means to social development and well-being for all. There are clear limitations in the development path Ireland has been taking. While it performs well when measured by some macroeconomic standards, Reality for many citizens and for the environment is different. For, exa for example, due to the current housing situation and several other factors, many citizens are facing the prospect that their standard of living 
will not equal that of their parents, the first generation uh, in which that is the case for many centuries. It is clear that Ireland's recovery pre-COVID had not been experienced equally by all, and this situation has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Public services remain overstretched even at this point. As part of a new model for development, government should ensure that future Rising areas such as social housing, primary care, and mental health facilities, elder care services and supports, and childcare and early education facilities. These are areas in particular where Ireland has been experiencing an, uh, an infrastructure deficit for quite some time. Policy initiatives that government could prioritise in this area of distribution of resources in society would be, for example, to set an ambitious target for the reduction and eventual eradication of poverty, to set uh, core welfare payments um, at, at, a, a, at a level and benchmarking there and link that to the minimum essential standard of living set out by the Vincentian Partnership for Social Justice. Move the national minimum wage in the direction of the living wage. Uh, a, a basic income system mentioned earlier as well uh, in a couple of the presentations uh, it's something obviously long advocated by Social Justice Ireland, but we believe it would go a long way to ensuring that everyone has enough money to live life with dignity. It would place an income floor underneath every individual, which can be relied upon regardless of changing circumstances, whilst also structuring Ireland's welfare system in a way that better meets the needs of the modern economy, increasing flexibility for individuals of working age and reducing inequality in society. It would also be a great enabler, giving people greater control over their lives and how they wish to divide them um, between work and education and caring and volunteering and leisure. Basic income seems to us uh, it should be a key part of a welfare system that is fit for the 21st century economy. But as mentioned earlier on by both Danny and Patricia, that these are the kinds of issues that we need to be able to sit down with government and across the table from each other and discuss and evaluate and see what the situation actually is. Another area that I want to look at now is valuing all people, the whole issue of values and how we put that into place, but particularly valuing people, all people. Social Justice Ireland believes strongly in the importance of developing a rights-based approach to social, economic, environmental, and cultural policy. Such an approach will go a long way towards addressing the inequality Ireland has been experiencing and should be at the heart of the development model for a just society. We believe that seven basic rights should be acknowledged and required and uh, recognized. And these are the rights to sufficient income to live life with dignity, the right to meaningful work, appropriate accommodation, relevant education, essential healthcare, cultural respect, and real participation in society. And we believe that public policy should be working towards vindicating these seven rights. And the policy implications of vindicating these rights are spelt out in some detail in the paper, which but I'm not going to go elaborate on them here, just to say that they would all be part of what we would see as a new social contract uh, for, for Ireland. Uh, now, another piece here is securing the common good, another issue I think that needs highlighting. Social justice Ireland also believes that well-being and the common good should be at the center of policy development. In recent years, there have been many useful discussions and publications on the issue of well-being. The National Economic and Social Council defined well-being as, as follows. 
a person's well-being relates to their physical, social, and mental state. It requires that basic needs are met, that people have a sense of purpose, and that they feel able to achieve important goals, to participate in society, and to live the lives they value and have reason to value. Now, this is the well-being that Social Justice Ireland would like for all members of society, and for not just our society, but for all society. As far back as Plato, it was recognized that the person grows and develops in the context of society. Society originates because the individual is not self-sufficient, but has many needs which she or he can't supply. The person grows and develops through relationships with other people, with, with family, with neighbors, with community, the wider society. And down through the ages, various philosophies and social arrangements have been proposed to meet the felt needs in society to fulfill their perceived obligations in the, to their members. This issue is addressed as far back as the work of Aristotle and Plato and Cicero and many others. In more recent times, the dignity of the person has been enshrined in the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we advocate that the dignity of each and every person must be recognized, acknowledged, and promoted effectively. And this implies that societies, structures, institutions, and laws should exist for the authentic development of the person. But the right of, individual, of the individual to freedom and personal development is limited by the rights of other people. And that leads to another core value, namely the common good. Now, the philosopher John Rawls defined the common good as certain general conditions that are equal equally to everyone's uh, advantage. Now, Social Justice Ireland understands the term common good as the sum of those conditions of social life by which individuals, families, and groups can achieve their own fulfillment in a relatively thorough and ready way. This understanding recognizes the fact that the person develops their potential in the context of society, where the needs and rights of all members and groups are respected. The common good then consists primarily of having the social systems, the institutions and the environments on which we all depend work in a manner that benefits all people simultaneously and in solidarity. And the National Economic and Social Council study referred to already states that at a, at a societal level, a belief in a common good has been shown to contribute to the overall well-being of society. And this requires a level of recognition of rights and responsibilities, empathy with others, and the values of citizenship. And now I want to move on to take a look at a, a critically important issue, which is ensuring sustainability, the whole issue of sustainability. Despite the crises that I have talked about in housing and health and our aging population and many other issues besides which we are besides besides these which we've already referenced, climate change remains the greatest long-term challenge facing Ireland today. It is all the greater for the fact that Ireland alone cannot control this, and any solutions implemented by Ireland will be of minimal use if not adopted as part of a global effort to curb emissions and move to a carbon neutral economy in the coming decades. However, that is no excuse for Ireland shirking its obligations as has been the case until now. Sustainable development is development which meets the needs of the present while not compromising the needs of the future. Financial, economic, environmental and social sustainability are all key objectives and they are all interlinked. And creating a sustainable Ireland 
requires the adoption of new indicators to measure progress. National income figures, which we depend on so much, are limited to measuring the monetary value of gross output income and expenditure in an economy and include many activities that are in fact detrimental to society and incompatible with the common good, while omitting other activities from that count uh, that are essential for society to survive and thrive. Social Justice Ireland believes that using a country's performance on the Sustainable Development Goals as a benchmark would be a more appropriate measurement of progress and well-being. And I reiterate the point made by uh, Colette Bennett earlier in the day that the Sustainable Progress Index, which Social Justice Ireland publishes each year, uh, it shows various things that need to be picked up. Uh, particularly on the, in this context, that Ireland's environmental performance compared to the, uh, the to the EU, all all the other countries in the EU15, ranks us in the most recent one, which is 2020, published earlier this year. It ranked us 15th out of 15, bottom of the class. This points to policies that have prioritised economic growth above sustainability, and this is an approach that cannot be allowed to continue. Social Justice Ireland suggests that government begin using an index such as the Sustainable Progress Index to measure Ireland's true progress annually. Sustainability is about more than the environment. It can also, it is about the environment always, but it's about, about a lot more as well. It can also relate to finances, economics and social well-being. And I acknowledge government's publication on well-being that was published with Budget 2021, which is certainly a step in the right direction. A sustainable social and economic model also requires balanced regional development. I'm not going to go into this, but there's a section in the paper on that. And also that, that there must be a, a concept of a, a just transition should be there and what it entails should be an issue uh, for consideration in a social dialogue involving all stakeholders, a suggestion that has been made by other speakers already today. And finally, the responsibilities and obligations of the global north towards the planet and the peoples of east and south must be taken into account. There is a double obligation on the rich world to decarbonize rapidly in its production and consumption practices and to help to fund mitigation and adaptation programs in the global south. These are issues that should be addressed in a new social dialogue and contained in a new social contract. Moving on then to look at a new social dialogue, what would it actually look like? If Ireland is to succeed in addressing the challenges identified here, the pathway to doing so must be founded on consensus, must be well managed and must be properly evaluated. It has been widely recognised that Ireland's government governance was poor in certain areas prior to the economic crisis of a decade ago. And this is particularly so with regard to uh, financial regulation but uh, decisions, uh, in reality, decisions were often made without any consultation or no substantial consultation of a great many stakeholders. That's a situation that uh, must uh, be adjusted. Reforming governance and widening participation must remain a key goal. A deliberative decision-making process involving all stakeholders and founded on reasoned, evidence-based debate is required. Everyone should have the right to participate in shaping the society, the society uh, in which they live and the decisions that impact on them. And in the 21st century, this involves more than voting in election and referendum. 
Ireland needs real, regular, structured, deliberative democracy to ensure that all the sectors and all, uh, of society can contribute to the discussion, to the decisions making of the, in, on the kind of Ireland uh, that uh, they wish to, 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 to see emerge and develop. Social dialogue helps a great many things. We've seen some of them listed already. It highlights issues at an early stage, which would allow them to be addressed promptly. More importantly, it ensures that the various sectors of society are involved in developing mutually acceptable solutions to problems that emerge, which in turn would be most likely to ensure their support for such solutions when implemented by government. And for such an approach to succeed, it must include all five pillars, the employers, trade unions, farmers, community and voluntary and environmental. Just to be clear, we're not talking about uh, the community and voluntary sector, for example, sitting in on the pay negotiations. No, that's not where the issue is, where there's an issue. However, it has to also be acknowledged that there's only so much uh, to be distributed in the cake. There's a cake is a limited size. And when decisions are made, the voices must all be heard on those decisions. And in many ways, a big chunk of the pie goes on pay increases and various trade-offs, including tax cuts and things of that nature. So it's very important that all the voices of the various uh, stakeholders be heard uh, before decisions are made. It should not be a situation where uh, some, decision, some issues are decided by a small number of uh, stakeholders and then the rest are left with whatever's left over. That should not be the situation. There has to be respect in this. As already noted, Ireland faces significant challenges in the coming decades, uh, among them the housing and health situations that I've referred to a few times. Uh, but we need to get beyond growth and markets and recognize that while they do have a role, they're only part of the solution. It's also important that all sectors of society, young and old, urban and rural, businesses, trade unions, farmers, community voluntary, social inclusion and environmental, have a voice in deciding how these challenges will be met. NED was mentioned, the National Economic Dialogue was mentioned earlier, and I would share some of the comments that were made about that at that time. I would agree with them. Social dialogue involving all sectors would enable the development of mutually acceptable solutions to problems. And it would, uh, it, towards that end, I think, one of the things that we need to bear in mind is the importance of increasing the transparency of budgetary and other important decisions. Now, I, I want to recognize the work done by the Oireachtas Committee on the Budget and the Parliamentary Budget Office. There's been a huge increase or an improvement in this whole area, but there is still a, a way to go. And it's, it's important that we travel that road. Um, but um, it seems to me that that should be a statutory responsibility. Those kinds of things should be available, those kinds of, that type of transparency. The new social contract outlined earlier, this is my conclusion really, uh, the new social contract outlined earlier in this conference by Colette Bennett and summarized here and the policy framework underpinning it are based on a very simple premise that we understand where we are as a society, that we can see where we want to go and that there is a logical pathway that will get us there. That is what a genuine social dialogue uh, can achieve. Ireland has for too long been afflicted by a state of affairs whereby we understand the issues, we know what needs to be done to improve matters, that we find ourselves failing to take the correct steps. It's time to change that. It's, uh, I think in our proposals on a new social contract, um, uh, a comprehensive framework setting out the current situation that we have there and the issues that need to be faced 
and the goals that we wish to achieve, reach as a society, this would, uh, would certainly uh, be useful uh, as a, a major contribution, we think, to the working through of what a new social contract would look like. Now, finally, having expounded on the need for an, for an overhaul of capitalism, if, if that's the way you might put it, um, at least capitalism as we know it, it is, it is perhaps with some irony, I give the closing words of this paper to Milton Friedman, that great exponent of neoliberalism and winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1976. He said, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. Our basic function is to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. It seems to me that now we're at such a moment. Ireland and indeed the planet faces several crises ranging from the pandemic, from pandemic to pollution to poverty. The situation where business as usual can mean only social and environmental catastrophe. Uh, there are alternatives that have been, uh, that have been developed. It seems that uh, these alternatives and ideas to existing policies should uh, result if they were discussed in a fairer, more just society and they are now available. All sectors of Irish society should be engaged in an ongoing social dialogue to, to decide how best to proceed. Ireland needs a new social contract and a new social dialogue. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sean. As usual, thanks, and great to hear you quoting Milton Friedman. That's, uh, that's one for the books anyway. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll record that one. Hello, and you're all very welcome to uh, the third session in uh, today's Social Justice Ireland Annual Policy Conference. And as I'm sure you'll know by now, our theme is uh, New Social Contract, uh, New Social Dialogue. And to that extent, we have a very interesting panel this afternoon. We have Danny Mackay from IBEC, Patricia King from ICTU, Damien McDonald from the IFI, and we have Sean Healy as well. And also we have Karen Seselski, who is from the Irish Environmental Network. We're going to have presentations from each of our speakers, followed by a Q&A. You will be aware by now, hopefully, that in order to submit your questions, just use the Q&A box on your Zooms. There's also a chat box there, and in that chat box is available the uh, presentation or the, the link to the uh, book that you can also uh, of today's presentations that you can also get on the Social Justice Ireland website. Okay, we're going to kick off first with Danny McCoy. Danny is Chief Executive Officer of IBEC since 2009. IBEC, as many of you know, is Ireland's largest business representation uh, representative organization and the country's largest lobbying group. It has 240 staff in seven locations. And it is a presence also in Brussels. Prior to joining IBEC, Danny was a senior economist at both the Economic and Social Research Institute and at the Central Bank of Ireland. Danny, off you go with your presentation, please. 
Great. Thank you very much, Mick. Um, thank you to Sean and um, Social Justice Ireland for the invitation and look forward to the engagement later on. Um, I'm not using a PowerPoint. I'm uh, going to uh, just take from the paper I submitted um, and really look at this issue of social dialogue and social compact. But clearly, one of the backgrounds from 2020 is the COVID pandemic and how that is actually, in my view, reinforced the need for social dialogue. And also during 2020, I think we've seen good evidence of social partners um, working together. Um, right up at the, at the front, the, the question is the difference between social partnership and social dialogue is a question that's often asked. Um, in my own view on this, I, I don't think the distinction is necessary, but people want to uh, ditch the social partnership uh, badge is that in the 1980s, um, social partnership, in my view, was for the individual. Uh, the individuals who could not stay in this country because they had to emigrate because there's no future, no jobs. And actually the coming together of the social partners was the compact on that occasion was centralized wage bargaining for moderate, moderate wage increases relative to productivity, for taxation cuts to increase the disposable income, and for industrial peace, industrial relations peace to allow for productivity to come forward to justify the wage increases against that backdrop. And, and the success of that, I think, is the turnaround where now we find um, that the individual in our society and the way into COVID, at least, and I believe not a lot has changed as a result of COVID, we can talk about that in the Q&A, is that now individuals, not all, um, can stay in this country. We've seen the population just touch 5 million uh, during this summer. Uh, we see that disposable income is at international high watermarks. We've seen savings substantially increase during COVID, but they're at elevated levels by the start of this year. And so also the career prospects for the vast majority of people were positive and strong. People who were able to build their future in Ireland and will continue to do so. So what is the need for a social compact or a social dialogue on this occasion? I think it's got to do with goods that are, might be deferred as social um, goods, collective goods. This is the public infrastructure, the public realm. We've seen the deficiencies on housing, planning, sustainability, infrastructure, or even the scale of the public sector. A uh, comment I made at the start of the year, and I believe to be proved right actually during COVID and some of the strains that come up, have come onto our society in the relative share to private public um, ratios. All of these um, are a backdrop. In IBEC, we were in addressing the COVID crisis, we set out a, a range of measures, which I think social dialogue has a role in playing as well, what we call the reboot and reimagine. It's the reimagine piece that I'm probably more interested in to just in the, in the time available uh, this afternoon to hit upon. But the reboot in itself is very significant. We see the largest budget in the history of the state. Uh, per capita, it's probably going to be the largest budget uh, globally. And the reason that is, is because of the success of the business and social model that we have here in Ireland, which had its precedence on that social partnership model. Uh, that we talked about earlier on, despite the public narrative. But actually, the last 10 years in not having that level of engagement, I think, has given rise to some of the problems that we're now grappling with. 
Um, and we see this with myself and Patricia at the Labour Employer Economic Forum, where those issues that came back into the labour market were as much got to do with collective goods in terms of the background for providing housing, childcare, pensions, uh, leave of various forms. And when you look at the mechanisms behind that, and in this reimagining phase, we've got with a new government, um, Commission on Pensions, Commission on Taxation and Social Welfare emerging, that the key consideration for the new social dialogue will be an instrument that actually tackles those socially provided goods and the terms of income protection measures that also COVID has brought forward, be they temporary wage subsidy schemes or employment wage subsidy schemes or the pandemic payment. These were an attempt to try to give people certainty through uncertain times. And so that crying out for having some form of income continuance model, I think an appetite has been created during COVID to which was clearly an identifiable need as a result of a hard Brexit as well, but more generally the type of wealthy society that we are now in a Western uh, European democracy context will probably need to see a lot more activity in the social welfare domain that is the uh, PRSI. And indeed, many employers, where they're enlightened, will see that the coordination mechanisms around agreement about the trajectory of the social insurance scheme, both on employers and employees, um, will be a way forward to ensure that we get the type of public infrastructure that underpins the expectations of a society that's made itself, in a private context, one of the wealthiest in the world. So the six themes in our um, Reboot, Reimagine, were really around engagement and crisis management. And I can think of no better model of than bringing in those who bring expertise to decision-making, something that um, my day has been filled with already in terms of the public health dimension, where we see that you know, it is better to get more views than singularity views on a single objective function uh, if you want to bring society with you. I think that is also the case when we look at those problems that we see in our society right now, from income continuance, security, uh, security in terms of household, I also think in terms of security of the state and the assets of the state, in terms of um, a society that's now built around intangible assets becomes a, a, a key consideration, but also the issues around planning infrastructure and sustainability. So that the engagement and crisis management, I think is, has offered up the opportunity to have more elaborate form of social dialogue going forward. The fiscal policy is clearly going to be part of that, and that will be embedded in that the welfare payments I talked about will also need the complementarity on the um, taxation element. And again, the factors that we have a very light uh, base in terms of um, our taxation model is something that is, needs to be addressed. I was on the last Commission of Taxation back in 2008 and the widening of the tax base just hasn't occurred in our society. And yet we see all the time in this kind of public-private uh, dialogue, just take Dublin as a, for instance, where the, where the councils, be they city or county, are now struggling in terms of their own finances because they won't address a property tax, uh, a lever that's already been put in place. And every time they walk out of the meeting and just look around and see the private affluence in terms of the investment in the private stock, in the same city, it's just remarkable, the disconnect. Uh, getting people back to work, but also in terms of the quality of jobs, I think is also something that a, com a social compact can bring about. Um, in terms of prioritization of the infrastructure as embedded in the National Development Plan. 
and just the reimagining of Ireland more generally in terms of its responsiveness in, in, in the world, particularly in the context of the response to Brexit, where I see the lens needs to be very clearly on a shared island approach. And I think that is you know, the narrative that, the lazy narrative that Ireland can't afford um, to have a sharing of its resources across the island. Uh, I think is, is a lazy narrative. I think it's a dangerous narrative. And I think that the price of not addressing uh, a shared island approach will be far heavier in the very short term uh, on this island than many people uh, would believe in terms of the uncertainty. One factor around that is actually embedded in the withdrawal agreement where every four years now, Northern Ireland will have to make a decision on the arrangements on which they will continue on. Will they continue to be within the EU as well as simultaneously in the UK? Any decision to withdraw from that agreement brings back the border issue. So it's a, min it's a miniature Brexit moment already embedded in our society. How better to deal with that social issue than do it through a wider span of social dialogue right across the island? So that shared island approach, I think, is going to be uh, very significant. So in many ways, we look at the programme for government and we look at the issues that social dialogue could include. Um, I think I've touched on, on many of them there. The low carbon transition and the climate challenge, again, makes no sense to see this in a divided island nature. An all-island approach um, makes sense. It makes sense in the COVID. Unfortunately, our coordination mechanisms aren't such that we have none in place to actually deal with these to any great extent. On the education and upskilling, clearly for the future, we're now living in a world that's driven by intangibility rather than tangible assets. Are we uh, future-proofed for that in terms of the kind of capacity of our educational system? Um, I, I find it remarkable the amount of lack of comment about the declining perception of our universities and international rankings. Uh, perceptions they are, but perceptions matter in an intangible world. And so to have none of our universities ranked in the top 100, when 22 UK universities are ahead of us, nine Dutch universities, I could go on, is remarkable disconnect for a society that's richer than all of those societies I just mentioned. Uh, why would we not, as a country that puts a premium on education, uh, not address some of the fundamental factors in terms of the funding of that education? And therein lies one of the mechanisms that we saw in recent years um, in the absence of formalized social partnership. We got agreement through the Cassell's report to increase employers' PRSI to be uh, earmarked for tertiary education. And indeed, the amount that was raised was small, but the principle was given that in terms of targeting things that people identified as necessary for a society, then employers are willing uh, to do their part. Uh, other, other aspects, of course, of uh, Cassell's remain the case where others abdicated um, in terms of the fee mechanism for students. Again, the naivety of pretending this is some type, term of fairness, it's fairness of access, but the consequence is that the underfunding means the experience and the perception goes downwards, then that's by far a false economy, and particularly a society that can afford uh, to bring as many people into the educational system, but to ensure that they actually pay for it as well through future income. These are the type of mechanisms I think a social um, dialogue model would have to grapple with and address. Diversity and gender balancing, another issue, gender pay gaps, but also the diversity and inclusion in our society. Some of this may be through the work-life balance that the remote working is now 
imposing upon us during COVID, how much of that stick into the future? Will that be at a price of a split workforce? Those who go to an office, for instance, and those who stay at home, will they all have equal experiences in terms of their progression? Is that something that a social dialogue and a social compact can actually address? And then there's the issue, which I'm sure Patricia will bring forward, and we'll talk again later this afternoon on it a number of fronts, uh, the employment rights, the employment rights also bring forward employee responsibilities. On the last piece in the paper, um, one of the features that is often put forward there, um, and happily, happy to discuss it at a later point, but conscious of time, is the idea of a universal basic income. Um, I, I note tongue-in-cheek that the word universal basic income is used today in the context of arts. So if it's truly universal, then we're probably all in for some payment in our artistic endeavors. Uh, I think it's a sectoral um, basic income. Um, and again, this, I suppose, at the heart of it goes to language and what do we mean? So if we can't use the word social partnership, let's use the word social dialogue. If we can't use the word all island economy, let's use the words uh, shared island. But again, that narrative and those descriptors were one of the features, I believe, of original social partnership models where people knew when they said things what they were talking about and didn't cross have cross purposes in terms of the description, um, which sometimes can be ideological. And that's fine if they are ideological, at least you know where somebody's position is. But again, this, this use of language and phraseology, um, I think is really important in terms of a glossary of terms. It may seem very stupid, but I've been at so many meetings and with so many different groups where the actual the language is not even common. It might be English, but it ain't, it ain't a common language at all in terms of what people mean by different terms. So universal basic income, I think, it can, it has many merits and could, could be part of the precariousness that people have felt in terms of a social income continuance model. Uh, it, can, it can have a role, but again, are we looking at a situation where people are, are well-intentioned and in other societies take something like the minimum wage? People, I think, assume that the minimum wage is to address the primary income of a household, the primary income earner. But yet we know, in the Irish context at least, a very significant proportion of minimum wage recipients live in households in the top 20% of income. Because very often, they're uh, offspring of households who are the early part of their career, or their second income um, partners in, in, in arrangements who are somewhat dabbling in the labor market um, in terms of providing uh, a, a, a vocational aspect in, in volunteerism, but that often requires that people um, are formalized and so might be willing to do it for nothing, but actually are required to receive some payment and often that will happen at a minimum wage. So these are the type of issues I think that rather than making these kind of lazy straw persons, we, we should uh, dive a little bit deeper. My concerns about the universal basic income is that it won't be um, sufficient for those who actually need it, and it'll be a stipendant for those who don't. And that, again, is not um, against the principle, but it's actually to see how it would work uh, in practice. So just very conscious of time, I think I'll leave that. The, the rest of the, my remarks are, are in the paper, but I do think that there is a time now for a social dialogue, a new social compact, 
it won't be centralized wage bargaining, but it will be related to the wage bill and it will be, re be related to the mechanism that is our social insurance fund. Because anybody can see that all of these pushes for sick pay, for additional leaves, they're all contingent liabilities on the wage bill. Um, and so if they keep coming uncoordinated, very quickly the wage bill goes up uh, and competitiveness will uh, come under strain at some point along the way. Better to know what you're buying in a negotiated outcome than have these things just coming out of private members' bills um, day in, day out, without anybody doing the adding up on its overall cost to employers. Thanks, Mick. You're on mute. In the wrong one. Thanks very much, Danny. Thank you very much for that and uh, for some excellent timekeeping as well under the circumstances. Next up, we have Patricia King. Patricia is the General Secretary of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. She's a former Vice President of SIPTU and also served as one of the two Vice Presidents of Congress. A full-time official with SIPTU for over 25 years, she was the first woman to serve as a National Officer of the Union when she was appointed Vice President in May of 2010. Patricia, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much, Mick. Uh, thank you for that. And so from this, I will take you through this presentation. And um, effectively, um, I, I want to thank you for the uh, opportunity. We can go to the next slide. I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, make this presentation to you. Uh, it too is an all-island body um, representing about uh, 700,000 members across both economies. And um, that in itself uh, gives us a very good insight into um, the differences and similarities between the two jurisdictions in relation to workers. Um, despite the financial downturn in 2009 and, and the subsequent drop in employment um, but contrary to some of the country, actually trade union move, uh, membership has grown uh, by almost 18.8% um, between 2016 and 2019. Now, the reason I make that point is because um, obviously there's a very high density of trade union membership in the public sector and in the state bodies and so on. The private sector, uh, the membership density isn't as high but it suits some narratives uh, out there um, and has done over the last number of years to try and effectively take us away from that pitch altogether. But my judgment is that those trends underpin the credibility of uh, the movement as a, as a national player. So then moving on then to the uh, current economic and social context. Uh, well, we all know we have COVID-19 and it has caused unprecedented disruption to society and uh, wreaked havoc really on our economy. And Danny has made reference to uh, a lot of the measures that have been put in place uh, to deal with that. Now, we obviously have some hope in relation to the vaccine, but I, I would say that there is a, a bit of time left still for this virus to do uh, considerable damage before the vaccine takes account of it. So that's one backdrop. The other one is that um, in this uh, pandemic, we have very, very clearly, you know, people now are in a position where they've had a different outlook uh, than they may have had in the past in relation to who our essential workers are. 
and the fact that they are often undervalued and underpaid. And I think that's certainly one of the lessons that has been learned. So alongside that backdrop, we have the no deal Brexit, uh, which is on the horizon. Again, very crucial discussions going on this week as we speak. Uh, what the outcome is, certainly it doesn't seem anybody's prepared publicly to guess anyway. So we don't know whether we'll get a deal or not, but this has the potential to cause a great deal of further damage uh, in particular sectors. And that, of course, uh, will result in, in further unemployment um, unless we can find solutions uh, to, to that. Now, um, apart from and, and the high borrowing levels and so on, forced really by virtue of this pandemic in the main, um, the future landscape, as I've said, looks like uh, the high unemployment. And I think young people are going to be a very significant segment of that uh, unemployed uh, cohort of people. And I think that's going to be a particular challenge and, and it'll have uh, severe societal and economic uh, ramifications. So then on, on, on the next one, we're saying that um, Congress is advocating, and you can see the, chain, the, the difference in the description between Danny and myself, a new social contract is what we're looking for. And we outlined this in great detail in our document, No Going Back, which we published in June of this year. And I suppose the principal components of this really includes that we want uh, an income-related social security system. We want that sort of um, reform. Uh, and that in the first place, we have to resolve the issues around sick pay, issues relating to pensions and so on. And um, I would say, I'm not going to go into any major detail, but I don't disagree with the points that Danny has made in relation to the UBI. I mean, there are good uh, parts and good points and merits to it, but there are also obviously other very um, challenging issues around the UBI. And, and it's not something that we would immediately be advocating. We want a reform to maybe happen in a different uh, way. We certainly want a universal single-tier health system um, and so that we can have a health system that responds to the needs of its people, not based on how much money you have, but based on uh, it, it, equality of access uh, for all who need to use it. Um, also, an investment programme in public housing that ensures that anybody who wants and needs a home has one by right. Now, uh, that word right is obviously covered off in the programme for government where they have conceded that they will have a referendum on that. We have to be very careful about that referendum. We have to make sure that it delivers what it says on the tin. And um, if it does, in my judgment, if we have that right um, as part of the constitution, it will be a game changer in terms of how uh, the state actually deals at the moment with the housing issue. Um, and and we can, I can develop on that if, if anybody wants to. We have a very deficient early childcare system at the moment, uh, both in terms of its access uh, in terms of uh, the pay people workers have working in the sector and indeed the costs to workers who need to access the uh, system. So uh, the state uh, continuously make the claim now that they're paying 70% of the cost of childcare 
Um, and it's interesting that uh, those who are using childcare don't feel that, and uh, certainly the workers who are in the uh, childcare sector have not seen anything like, remotely like, a, a decent wage working in that sector. So that has to be repaired. The sustainable green economy uh, through a just transition, and might I just add there that our judgment is when we make that statement, uh, we should include farmers in that because uh, where the Paris Agreement and indeed its predecessors were very clear, where people have to reform how they um, derive their income and so on and have to make, they are entitled to do this through a just transition. Now, we've had a bad experience in recent past in relation to the Bordnemona debacle, and uh, we, the state has not covered itself in glory in terms of how those workers have been uh, dealt with. Uh, um, so the experience to date is not good. Uh, and the experience in terms of the workers, the workers have never, uh, ever raised any issue about what they had to do in terms of the sustainable green economy, but they have paid a price. And, and the just transition was to take account of all of that, and it hasn't uh, seeped through. And I have personal experience of that because I've represented those workers um, on many, many occasions. Um, what we need to see in labour market terms is we have to see an end to the polarised labour market with the low pay endemic in certain sectors. And we know who those sectors are and, and how they operate. And, you know, we have to find remedies for the scourges of uh, the precarious work practices, such as bogus self-employment. And fundamentally, we have to get to a place where uh, people earn a decent day's pay for a decent day's work. And we are nowhere near that. And we have the state upholding employers in terms of paying low wages. The state has to, in order to exclude um, deprivation in, in have to uh, provide a lot of uh, state money and low pay does cost the state money and when this economy is humming outside of pandemic and no brexit uh, we were still paying uh, three quarters of a billion euro every year to keep people um, from certain levels of deprivation uh, and that was the state state in that way upholding um, low pay and and those workers who are doing those jobs would far prefer to be fair, uh, earning a decent rate of pay for the work that they're doing so at the moment we our legislation is very deficient in relation to how workers can exercise their voice there's no entitlement to representation trade unions and their ability to collectively bargain fundamentally uh, the manner in which we operate in this country is you can get it if the employer agrees it. If they don't, you won't. And that's a really imbalanced way to do our business. And we've had several, as we know, High Court and Supreme Court challenges in relation to all that, and Danny is right. That's why, um, based on some uh, moves that are made uh, afoot in Europe, that is why we need to have uh, an adult conversation about this. So how can we achieve this new social contract? Well, our judgment is that social dialogue is central to this. And, um, you know, all the big issues like who would pay for the changes, um, all these very basic fundamental questions should be part of that dialogue. And we know that the government, in the current government in their programme, um, set out that they recognise the importance 
of regular and open engagement with all sectors of society and they commit to strengthening existing mechanisms such as NESC and the LEAF to create new models of sectoral engagement. So they also mentioned that the role of the Oireachtas in the government and policy formation should be uh, fully reflected and I think this can often reflect an unstated but widely shared concern that social dialogue usurps the policy making and political processes. Um, and I myself believe that this can reflect really a lack of clarity about what we want or what we don't want from social dialogue because we don't have any interest in usurping the role of the policy developers or indeed uh, the political um, system. But at the moment, what we have is we have LEAF, as Danny has mentioned, which deals mainly with labour market issues, labour rights, uh, employment rights, disputes and other matters that might arise over time, and maybe the other ancillary issues that we, ha he ha we have referred to, um, such as the housing and the social protection and so on. But it, so far in LEAF, the LEAF structure has been quite deficient in terms of dealing with those um, ancillary matters, hasn't really dealt with them at all, hasn't come out, hasn't really affected any change. So we've, we've already told the system that we think um, the current LEAF process is not uh, providing us with the avenue to, to do what it is we, we need to do. So from our point of view, um, you, you ask yourself the question, what should the social dialogue model look like? And there are, of course, many views on that. The ILO, uh, the European Treaties, the European Pillar of Social Rights, even the OECD, they have all outlined definitions of what they believe uh, it should be. But in our view, um, it must, any social dialogue model that you have must involve all those who have a stake in the outcomes of economic and social policies. And these representative organizations must have an opportunity to influence and shape uh, current and future policies. Um, and that's why we think it has to be really succinct as to what are you doing there? What are you in this process for? Uh, and we don't want a system of uh, centralized pay bargaining. That was attached to the previous social partnership model. And we're certainly not advocating that in this scenario. So uh, from our point of view, the um, labor market issues, a restructured leaf should uh, deal with these matters. And uh, I think the current structure of leaf needs to be um, re reformed, reconfigured, uh, made stronger, but uh, it shouldn't um, be dismantled. We have the uh, National Economic and Social Council, which in our view provides a really excellent forum for the development of in-depth policies. They do very good work. A lot of us who are on this call are involved in it. But there isn't any point in having that organization developing all those in-depth policies and then everybody, um, the policy developers going along and ignoring it. So from our point of view is we need to enhance its role and we need to uh, have central engagement strengthened. So from our perspective, how policy and political processes respond will determine whether we are achieving this new social contract and whether the same people will be left behind in our society. So from, in, in conclusion, I would just say that um, post-pandemic, 
world will be different. Danny has made some references. How we work, even how we go to work, uh, will be different. Uh, the opportunity to shape and develop a more equal economy and society, I think, is there for us. Uh, key world leaders have a more progressive narrative. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, you have, would have heard her in her State of the Union address, uh, work must pay. Uh, she's also been, in, I suppose, one of the instigators, if not the main instigator, of putting forward the EU directive on, on the minimum wage and uh, collective bargaining. Uh, President-elect Biden, in his uh, address, marshalling the forces of decency, fairness and hope. Now, they are very different narratives to what we've heard in, in, in the years uh, previously. And there is hope lies in there. So my, my judgment is that we have a lot of challenges. We have economic challenges. We have societal challenges. We have a virus challenge. We have a Brexit challenge but we also have an opportunity. And I think we should grab the opportunity uh, through a workable, uh, inclusive social dialogue, and we should deliver a new contract where nobody is left behind and everybody has a fair and equal opportunity. Thank you, uh, Chair. Thanks very much for that, Patricia. Thank you for that presentation. Next up, we have uh, Damien MacDonald. Damien was appointed Director General of the Irish Farmers Association in January 2017. Prior to that, he was Chief Executive Officer of Horse Sport Ireland, the governing body for that, the, that sport. And he was Chief Executive of Macro and Affirma from 2001 to 2007. Damien, it's over to you. Damien, are you mute? I'm mute, but I'm here now, yeah. I think. You're right. Thanks. Great. Off you go. Thanks. A couple of photos I can see on my own screen. I have to go back one, I think, there. Anyway, I know I'm okay. Okay, well, um, thank you very much um, for the invitation to uh, address the seminar today in the first instance. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting topic, I think. So I'm just getting the screen set up there and see if it works okay. Can you see the screen there, Mick? Okay, so just, I suppose, a quick background, first of all, on agriculture, as my first slide there, that 6.7% of gross national income comes, comes from agriculture. Agri-food exports have reached 14.5 billion in, in 2019. Direct employment is uh, over 160,000 uh, people. While that's 7.1% of the to of total employment, it's a it's it's more influential, obviously, in the regions where it's 11% of regional employment. The average farm size in Ireland nationally is is still only 34 hectares. The average number of cattle per herd is 66, and the average dairy herd size is size is approximately uh, 90 cows. So, I hope my screen will move on there now. Apologies there now, my next screen isn't moving. Colette, you're not there, are you? I am, if you want me to replace your screen with mine. It's just not running for some reason. Um, I, don't I know can why. share my screen instead, Damien, if that's all right. Apologies, yeah, yeah, uh, well, yeah, that's okay. Can you take me back or do I need to opt out there? Uh, that's okay, I can take you back. 
What is now? Sorry about that, Matt. I don't know why it won't. Uh, it's just not running to the next slide. Now, maybe there's another that's, way. That's all right. The vagaries of the, the medium we have to use these days. Yeah, I practice yeah. it here. <laughs> are you okay there, Colette? You can take me back on your way. Do I need to opt out here? Are you okay? No, you're grand. I can take you. I'm just getting your, sli your slides up. That's up. Well, I'll stop sharing then in a sec, yeah. Great. I'm pressing a few other buttons here, but they're not working. <laughs> no worries. There we go. Sorry now, Mick, I'm wasting a minute of your time now as well. And you're, it's time you're all right, don't worry, Damon. These things happen. We look, we're, we're uh, I'll actually, I'll just keep talking, right? A little bit. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, so, okay, so I have to ask you, Colette, to move me on. Is that it? It's literally a roll at their Colette scenario, is it? Oh, thank you. I'm sure it's not the first time you heard that one, but anyway, it was too good an opportunity to miss. Okay, so look, if you can go to the third slide, which is the map of Ireland there. Uh, yeah, so that just gives you a regional breakdown of agriculture in Ireland. I won't dwell on that. And the next slide then is on social partnership. And just to mention that, um, obviously, there was a full farming pillar in the, in the original social partnership. Uh, we're now part of the National Economic Dialogue. And um, I think everybody involved in that would find it you know, much less engaged than the original social partnership. Uh, it's pretty much a box ticking exercise in, in my view. And, and there are politicians around the table as well who, in my view, uh, you know, tend to dominate it to some degree. I think, I think one of the things we've lost from the old model of social partnership is that while there was a lot of emphasis on the engagement of the pillars with government, and, you know, I think Patricia and Danny, to a lesser extent, has referred there to, you know, this perception that it had too much power and was usurping uh, legislators and so on. But I think one of the things we've lost is the, is the interaction between the pillars, which I think of itself, both formally and informally, uh, was, was, is something that we've really missed. Um, and that's one of the points I want to build on here. So my screen has now gone blank altogether, Colette. Hello. I just can't see the next slide now, and it is a graphic there. So the, the next slide should be on viability. Okay, it's back there. So look, I just want to use the opportunity we have here just to maybe touch on a few of the challenges facing agriculture. And the first one is to look at the viability of Irish farming. And as you can see from the graph there, about a third of farmers are currently viable. If you're sustainable, your farm has been maintained to off-farm income. And if you're vulnerable, you, you're, you, you have a very low income on the farm and you have no off-farm income either. So it's a third, a third, a third. So the next slide uh, shows the breakdown in terms of sectors. And this is another significant challenge for agriculture. And as, as you can see there, the blue line on top represents the portion of dairy farmers who are viable. The green line, tillage farmers. The black line is the average. And then the purple and red lines are sheep and cattle. And you can see from that that there is a huge disparity between sectors in agriculture in that, you know, a lot more dairy farmers are, are, are viable than any other sector. And that's what's driven to, to, to almost entirely driven the move uh, we see into dairy expansion and more, more dairy farms and farmers exiting cattle farming and to, to a lesser degree tillage farming and sheep farming and moving into, into dairying. 
And that's a challenge for the agri sector as well, because it makes it more difficult for us as a representative organization to keep it all together as well in that in the, a disparity uh, reduces cohesion amongst the sector. So the next slide then deals with, um, uh, I, I, I suppose to expand on my presentation a bit, this uh, shows food prices in Ireland uh, from 2008 to 2019. And if you look at the green part of the bar chart, it shows clearly that in each of the last six years, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 and 19, food prices in Ireland have actually fallen in each of the last six years. And uh, while that has, um, you can move to the next slide now, Colette, while that has and here is, is the distribution in terms of household income. So if you look at the top line in terms of what households are spending on food, in 1980, households were spending 27.7%, as you can see, on food. That figure is now in 2015, 2016, for this comparative purposes, that's now down to 14.7 and, and is continuing to decline. So next one now, Kate, Colette. So you can see there the implications of that are, okay, it benefits households in the short to medium term, obviously, because it allows them to have more disposable income to spend on other uh, commodities, but it is not sustainable. And as we see, with only 34% of farmers in Ireland now viable, and it's forcing farmers to get bigger to remain viable. And also we saw that, which came to light during the summer, so the working conditions in the meat processing sector as well are, are certainly far from ideal. And what's happening is the reduction in the retail price is just pushing down on the rest of the sector and reducing the ability of those sectors to earn a return from what they do. And what you're seeing is both in the processing sector and at farmer level, uh, we've seen consolidation and people getting bigger, running faster to stand still in terms of what they can earn. And that's the reality uh, faced by most farmers. So the next one now, Colette, is, so what does all this mean, I suppose? looking at food security. So Europe uh, is a high cost economy. It's a higher cost to produce food in, in Europe than it is in many other continents. But I would be of the view that food security is taken for granted in Europe. Now we saw a few maybe uh, signs of, of the sort of fear that could grip uh, people with the food shortages in the early part of COVID when people were unwilling to cross borders with food. And even maybe during the snow when you know there was a, when we saw a few empty shelves from bread and so on, and I know it became a bit of a joke at the time, but it shows I think with the just-in-time delivery system we have how susceptible our food chain is uh, to disruption if anything goes wrong, and but I, and I think not enough emphasis is being given to ensuring that we have a safe supply of food within Europe ourselves. Only about forty percent of the of the world's land can be used for agriculture and only a third of this is suitable for arable crops. So it's clear that we need to keep farmers on the land. And the question is, have we an attractive proposition for the next generation of farmers? Go ahead. So this, just quickly to look at this, gives you a distribution of the of farmers in Ireland. And you can see we only have 6% of farmers uh, under 35. And there are, there are more farmers uh, over 80 than under 35 in Ireland. That's the reality of what we face. So go ahead, Colette. So the question then is, well, what's sustaining, if you look at, at the moment, what's sustaining farmers at the moment? And 
farmers are very dependent in Ireland on direct payments. And I might just dwell on this uh, chart for a second or this table for a second, because it has, it, if you take, it, what the table does is take the all figure at the bottom. It's the amount of direct payments uh, on average per farm and the total family farm income and the percentage of the family farm income that's contributed by direct payments. So if you look at the total line on the bottom, you'll see that 18,000 euro is the average direct payment, but the average family farm income is 23,000. And that makes up 77% of family farm income. But if you look at the three rows above that, let's take one, take cattle rearing as your example, your classic suckler farmer, uh, which tends to be based on the Western seaboard. The direct payments they're receiving on average is 14,700, but their total family farm income is 9,000. So 160% of their income comes from direct payments. Those farmers, along with sheep farmers and the other uh, category, other cattle category, they're actually eating into their own money by, by farming. If they, they could retain more of the direct payment if they stopped farming. And that's a significant challenge for us in terms of trying to maintain a productive agriculture in those parts of the country. So go ahead, Colette, we'll try the next one. So, so the common agriculture policy, it shows the dependence of farming in Ireland on the common agriculture policy, particularly in the cattle, sheep and cattle over categories. So cattle and sheep farmers are on average are loss making. They're actually, as I said, eating into the direct payments and these losses are being funded by CAP and in, which is not depicted on it, is off-farm income. Again, there's lots of farmers being sustained by off-farm income. But if you looked at their farming activity in its purest form, it's not profitable. There are a chronic lack of successors on cattle and sheep farmers. And the next generation of farmers will take more detached decisions. I mean, we have a, a, a very a strong attachment to the land in Ireland, but you, there are other opportunities of what people can do with the land, you know, in, in the modern world. And people, the next generation will be more detached about that. So the original purpose of the CAP was to support farmers to produce food, but CAP is a diminishing part of the EU budget and there are increasing requirements placed on farmers to draw down their, their funds. So the next issue then is looking at uh, just, that's just a depiction of the percentage of the overall EU budget now spent on CAP. And as you can see, it's diminishing significantly from about 55% in the 88 to 92 period down to only about 30% in, in the next seven years based on what's proposed there now. So we can go to the next one, please. Now, I'll dwell on this one for a second as well, because it's a busy graph, but it depicts the changes in common agricultural policy since 1990. And if you look at the 1990 bar, uh, it tells you that most of the supports in the original cap were built into the price. So it was export refunds and other market supports Typically, intervention uh, was was export refunds, aids to private storage, but intervention was the was was a key part of it. So, and if you look now, say just skipping up to 2020 and look up the make the makeup of the cap payments today, you'd see a very small amount is now related to market related expenditure. The blue bit tells you that it's coupled direct payments. So again, only less than 12% of the payments are linked to production. So you don't have to produce to get the payment. And again, that would worry me for the future in terms of output from agriculture uh, based on how the cap is designed. Decoupled direct payments are the green bit. 
And the green bit then with the shading on it are, is greening, which are payments linked to environmental conditions. And the purple bit then is the total rural development expenditure. And again, the percentage of the rural development expenditure that are linked to climate. So it's a very, very different common agricultural policy now than it was in 1990. And the proposals which are on the table now, which look are, are a cause of, of certainly a lot of public debate at a European level, uh, will, will, will further increase the shaded areas there, albeit not by as much maybe as some would like, but it will certainly be, be more and be deeper than what's there at the moment. That's the trend. And uh, I think everybody recognises that, that that trend is going to continue in future caps. So next um, one, please, Colette. So again, this is just a depiction again from the OECD in terms of what the annual growth in demand for key commodity foods. And if you take meat and fresh dairy, you can see that there, are, there, that those, there will be increased demand for both of those products, the, the two main items we produce in Ireland. And it's broken down there. The blue bit is the bit that's due to population growth. And the green bit is the bit that's due to per capita uh, demand growth. So you can see global demand, obviously with the global population going to increase significantly between now and 2050, there will be a demand, uh, increased demand for all food, food groups. Um, you might have some su substitution from one food group to another, but uh, there's still going to be increased demand. Okay, Colette, thank you. So... The next slide I just put in again in terms of food, global food security and the, the, a real concern that I would have about us incentivizing people to stop production or reduce production. This graph shows the cultivated land per capita in the world in, 20, in 2000 and what it's projected to be in 2050. The blue uh, chart is what it is in 2000 and the green chart is, is 2050. And as you can see, with the exception of Eastern Europe and the Russian Federation, the per capita uh, amount of cultivated land available is due to reduce quite significantly on, on every continent. And that poses huge challenges for us in terms of being able to produce enough food to feed an expanding uh, global uh, population. So the next slide then um, just deals with, I suppose, to get specific for a second on the EU Green Deal, which is currently, uh, it's been mentioned a number of times today already. And the EU farm to fork and biodiversity strategies, they're very ambitious in terms of what they want to achieve, but it must be balanced with increased funding. They, they, will, they will put uh, the farm to fork and biodiversity strategies, whether we like it or not, they will cause increased costs of production. Um, and already the USDA have done a study on this. Ironically, the European Union haven't finished theirs yet. And the, the, it shows a significant increase in costs. So one of the theories in the, in the um, farm to fork strategy is that, you know, if we, if we have more organic farms and we reduce pesticides use and so on, we get an increased return from the market. And that has failed to materialize uh, in, 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 throughout recent history. Um, that there's been any increased return for farmers for producing a higher standard of product. The experience has been quite the contrary. You do more for less. And I, I, the, the phrase I'd best use to describe it is that today's premium product becomes tomorrow's commodity. And it's not a premium product for long in, in, in today's marketplace. So I think a key issue for all of us here for to move forward with some sort of shared vision for this between farmers and environmentalists is we must understand 
what the full impact of implementing these policies will be. It's very easy to set targets and ambitious targets and flag wave about those, but what are the consequences? Because the reality is someone is going to have to pay for this. And there's only three people who can pay. It's, go, it's the EU or the government. The pub, public policy pays first. The, the consumer pays first or the farmer pays first. And based on all experience to date, uh, the, the cap budget is, is falling. Uh, the, the consumer will not pay. And the way the retail sector is structured won't let them pay because of the intense competition you have here. And, and we can have another debate about whether it's desirable, whether they should pay or not. The person who's been paying all along is the farmer. And that's what's created such concern in terms of where the, the, the thing is going. So in terms of the next slide then, reducing emissions. And, and I think it's accepted we have to reduce emissions. I, I, you, you won't, I think, find a farmer anywhere that doesn't agree with that. But I think the key issue is we must have a balance between economic, environmental and social sustainability. And I would say a key message is we have to focus on reducing emissions rather than reducing output. And I think we've made a mistake and it has alienated a lot of farmers to talk about reducing the national herd. We can reduce emissions uh, without doing that. And that has to be, I think, the, the, the goal. And ruminant animals are a tremendous asset on the planet, going back to feeding our populations, because they can convert grass to nutrients for human consumption. This is the ruminant animal is a tremendous machine in terms of what it does. And it's a very, very valuable um, asset to, to, to uh, the planet. And only about two thirds of agricultural land in, in, the, in the world and only 40% is agricultural is suitable for grass, only grass. It will not support the growing of crops. And there was a reference earlier to the Dust Bowl in America. And if you go back to history, it was the plowing up of grass and people trying to grow crops in areas where the soil couldn't sustain it to cause a lot of these problems. But so the goal has to be, and I think we, 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 there's a, an opportunity here to have a shared goal is we must produce more nutrients for less emissions. That has to be the goal. Like even mentions output of carbon, kilos of carbon, it's all about nutrients that we can produce. And Chagas have produced the marginal abatement cost curve which, which we can move to the next slide, which does demonstrate that we can, we can reduce our emissions by some 15% based on um, various measures, some of which are, a lot of which are being implemented already, but we do need to focus on implementing these more to incentivize farmers to adopt uh, better technology. And the science here is moving very quickly. Um, if you look at, um, you know, there's huge developments in terms of, feed additives and modern and technologies which can substantially are very promising in terms of being able to reduce um biogenic methane from ruminant animals by, by feed additives and other technologies that we can that we can use i won't go into the detail of this because of time if we just move to the next slide for a minute and i just wanted to again uh, make the point in terms of keep things in perspective about the number of cattle and sheep we have in ireland at the moment if you look there, say, take 1977, we had over 7 million cattle and about 3.5 million sheep. If you go to 1997, you can see that we had, uh, you know, significantly more, more cattle then than we have now. We had 7.5 million cattle and 8 million sheep. And then if you look at 2017, 2018 and 2019, in 2019, we have, we have 
still over the 7 million cattle, 7.2, and 5 million sheep. But you can see the number is actually, uh, is actually dropped from 2017 and 2018 in terms of the number of bovines we, we have. Um, so I just think we need to keep this in perspective. And if we could agree a shared vision to say the objective, a shared objective is to re reduce biogenic methane output per animal. That is an attainable goal. So go to my final slide then about, I suppose, to try and tie it back in a bit to the, the topic. And I called my uh, presentation Finding Common Ground because I think we can. And I think it's a great regret that environmentalists and farmers have, have ended up in some cases in, as adversaries in relation to this and an adversarial relationship has developed around it. Because I'm absolutely certain that we have far more in common than we have in difference. And on all sides, maybe some of the more extreme views that are expressed, and they tend to find their way onto the airwaves because it makes better radio and TV, uh, tend to alienate uh, the middle ground here. And I think there is a substantial middle ground of environmentalists and farmers, farmers who, who realize they have responsibilities and want to do more, and environmentalists who realize that farmers have to live as well. And I think the goal is if, if we can improve the environment and improve farm incomes to find that sweet spot. And, and I think that is achievable. Uh, that is achievable if we were to sit down and try and work out how we do it. We need a mature discussion about the price of food because, and, and this has obviously significant impacts for, for uh, people in low pay and, 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 and you know, in terms of affordability, all of that. And, and we need a mature discussion about it because simply the price of food consistently reducing year on year, that is not sustainable. It cannot continue. And we have to face up to that as to where we'll end up if we do that. But the, the key question is, who pays for the additional production costs? Because if we want higher environmental ambitions, it will cost more and someone is going to have to pay for that. And at the moment, farmers feel that it's going to be them because in the absence of anyone else paying, they're the default uh, scenario because the market will make them pay, uh, will, will impose the costs and the public, the, the, the public policy will make them pay because they'll up the conditions they have to meet. One other point I think where we really have a bit in common is that there are different rules for non-EU imports. And for example, if you look at issues like GMO, which again is a very, very um, uh, sensitive topic, but if we want to be able to feed the increased populations and we want to farm in a more environmentally friendly way, we are importing product into the European Union produced with GM. We can't use it here. And then we're trying to compete against that. There's not a consistency around that. And there are lots of other inconsistencies about the, 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 uh, what we apply to imports and what we apply to what we produce here. The Mercosur trade deal is a good example of where the views of farmers and environmentalists have allied uh, because I think there's been an increasing focus on what's happening in Brazil, particularly in relation to the rainforests. And again, it goes back to my area of cultivated land per capita. In a scenario where that's dropping and people need to feed people, that's what puts pressure on people to make more land cultivatable. The challenge for us is to try and get a better return from land that's already suitable for cultivating. We have a good supply of water in Ireland. If it's not produced here, it is going to have to be produced somewhere else because we need more food. That is an inalienable reality of the statistics and what they're telling us. So I suppose to finish up, is there room here for a new social partnership? And I was struck, you know, 
Danny and Patricia made points about could we call it something different, you know? And sure, in, in all walks of life, that's often a solution. But certainly, if farmers and environmentalists had a safe space to talk about these things, and if we were in around the table at social partnership every day of the week, I think relations would have been better. And we might have ended, we might end up in a scenario where we'd realize that we have more in common than a difference. So the question is, could a new social partnership involving farmers and environmentalists find this common ground um, to move us forward in a scenario where we can have where we can improve the environment and improve farm incomes? So thank you, Chairman. Thanks very much for that, Damien. Uh, a very interesting presentation, particularly for the large numbers of people who I suppose are not au fait with the specific challenges facing farmers today. Now, our next speaker is Karen Sesielski. Karen is CEO of the Irish Environmental Network. She works to promote and advance the interlinked principles of environmental, social and economic sustainability by supporting members of that network. She also serves as the coordinator of the Environmental Pillar, an advocacy coalition which works to create and promote sustainable policies. Karen, over to you. Hi, thank you. And I know, Colette, you have my slides. Let me just wait for you to play version. Okay, great. If you want to move to the next slide, Colette, that'd be great. Okay, thanks a million. Um, well, thanks so much for inviting me here today to contribute to this important discussion. I hope everyone can, can hear me okay, um, about the need for a new social contract and what that would look like and mean for us as a society. As Mick said, I'm the CEO of the Irish Environmental Network, the umbrella network for 31 Irish national environmental NGOs. And I also serve as the coordinator of the Environmental Pillar, our advocacy coalition, which brings together environmental organizations to work collectively to advance and promote sustainable policies. We've seen public concern for the environment grow and it's continuing to grow. We've seen young people here and around the world take to the streets in huge numbers, demanding that we as the decision makers and stewards of their future environment act urgently on climate breakdown. The Dáil declared a climate and biodiversity emergency which was a step, but now what does that mean in terms of action and how are we people involved in those actions? Public participation lies at the heart of the social contract, which hasn't always been a given in relation to environmental decision-making. Individuals and communities have always come together to organize, mobilize, and use legal mechanisms where necessary to protect their environment, working to have their voices heard whether they were formally invited to participate or not, because they care and because their environment matters to them. If we could move on to the next slide, please, Colette. Over time, the demand from the public to have a say in issues that affect them has led to the development of rights-based provisions for public participation in environmental decision-making. For example, the Lisbon Treaty affords people the right to submit a citizen's initiative to the European Commission. The Aarhus Convention has been ratified by all EU member states and must be abided by, by both the Commission and individual states. This convention gives us rights to access information, participation in decision-making, and also access to justice on environmental matters. 
For example, we are entitled to ask public bodies for documents on the likes of air, water, biodiversity, pollution, emissions, and waste, as well as documents linked to policies and plans that are likely to affect the environment. The Protocol on Strategic Environmental Assessment, or SEA, is also applicable in every member state and really copper fastens for public participation in SEA processes. UN Sustainable Development Goals, particularly Target 16.7, aims to ensure responsive, inclusive, participatory, and representative decision-making at all levels. Um, next slide, please. Some of the benefits of community-centered decisions which result from effective public participation include there's an improved quality of decisions that are made, particularly when local knowledge and community concerns are reflected and incorporated in the outcomes. More effective implementation of decisions with increased legitimacy and also the potential to reduce conflict. Active and engaged communities, greater transparency and accountability, which builds trusts in decision-making processes themselves and in our institutions and strengthens democracy ultimately. Um, next slide, please. There are a number of ways that public participation in Ireland currently happens in relation to environmental decisions and frameworks that support those activities. So there are established structures like the public participation networks or PPNs. This is an important linkage to local government decision-making channels and also how they connect to national decisions. There are local environmental networks, or LENs, which are made up of individuals and groups with interests in a wide range of issues. They provide a central hub around which people from a given county can gather, discuss projects, ask for help, create change, and also join their PPNs if they wish. There are also deliberative processes, like citizens' assemblies, which provides space for context, rich dialogue and discussion, and have had a huge impact in movements for social change. For example, in relation to marriage equality and enhanced reproductive rights. The Citizens' Assembly on Climate Action, for example, made 13 recommendations which outlined how Ireland could transform into a leader in tackling climate change. Members of the public are also um, asked to take part in consultation processes. So how this, how this happens and the processes for gathering these inputs and feedback vary widely according to the government department or body, ranging from an online survey sometimes of multiple choice questions to very detailed written submissions. And members of the public also take part in town hall events and dialogues, roundtables and seminars to learn more about particular initiatives, ask questions and provide direct feedback to public bodies. Also, the environmental pillar uh, was established as an independent national social partner in 2009 as a way to involve civil society in public debate and policymaking. And finally, representatives of civil society are often invited to join consultative committees and advisory bodies to advise and develop policies in relation to the natural environment. Uh, next slide, please. So then I just described lots of ways which the public can engage and participate in an environmental decision-making processes. There are weaknesses with the current models. 
including, firstly, there is quite a low level of general awareness and information among the public about how to get involved in decision-making. And while citizens' assemblies have proven to be fantastic opportunities for rich discussion, understanding, and consensus building, we need to develop and facilitate models which encourage a similar level of debate and dialogue in other fora, including locally and regionally. Also, it's important to note that while the outputs and recommendations of citizens' assemblies can inform and influence policymaking, they're not binding. Uh, persistent barriers for marginalized communities to participate fully in decision-making processes remain, and they have to be addressed through ways of working which are inclusive and accessible by design right through to implementation. And the COVID pandemic has exacerbated inequalities in, in relation to participation, particularly in uh, when we're looking at high quality broadband and the availability of it, as we've seen a shift to online events and processes. There's also no set rule around timeframes for consultations. As a result, we generally see um, timescales which are too short and which lead to challenges in obtaining proper feedback and engagement. There's also a lack of consistency about where to find information, how to participate, and the formats and nature of, of how we input. Inadequate resourcing prevents wide-scale engagement, and it limits contributions. We need to close the feedback loop. So when individuals, community groups, and NGOs make submissions, they need to be kept informed about where that feedback goes and the impact that their contributions have made to, to finished policy documents. That will also prevent consultation fatigue. The public should also be able to provide input and comments and have due account taken of them at an early enough stage of decision-making when all options are still open on whether the proposed activity should go ahead at all, referred to as the zero option. So this is special significance if the proposed activity might be of high risk or if there are unknown potential environmental impacts which may result from a specific action. And finally, public dialogue events can be more one way in nature as opposed to allowing for genuine discussion and knowledge exchange among stakeholders. Um, we've seen as events have moved online as well, the prevalence of, of pre-selected questions is emerging as a potential barrier to a full and rich debate about issues of importance. And next slide, please, Colette. So though there are agreements and obligations which protect our access to environmental justice, there's always a threat that these rights will be weakened or diminished. For example, the heads of the Housing and Planning Bill 2019 raised serious concerns among environmentalists, lawyers, and community groups. The bill would limit the ability of, of communities and individuals to access the courts to challenge planning decisions with a requirement around legal standing and stipulated that groups would need to have been in existence for three years before enacting proceedings. This is particularly problematic as very often neighbors and communities may coalesce around specific issues which have arisen in their local area. Further, the heads of bill raised concerns that groups would need to have a minimum number of members before they could access justice, as well as the risk of incurring substantial costs if they challenged planning decisions in the courts. So this is in direct conflict with rights guaranteed under the Aarhus Convention. 
including the right to access justice that is fair, equitable, timely, and not prohibitively expensive. There was also a significant procedural issue with the consultation process. The timeframe for submissions um, provided only 23 working days, many of which fell during the traditional Christmas holiday period to submit detailed and constructive feedback on a bill which would squarely reduce the ability of individuals and groups to have a say in the future. Following pressure from groups, opposition politicians and committee members, the deadline for comment was extended um, and concerned citizens and groups made submissions to highlight their concerns with the bill. So what are the next steps? Um, well, concerned groups will be ready to take part in advocacy and awareness raising activities once the bill is presented for pre-legislative scrutiny, focusing on the extent to which our submissions and feedback have had an impact on ensuring that the rights of communities and individuals to access environmental justice remain protected and enshrined. Uh, next slide, please, Colette. So I'm going to spend a few moments talking about a current example of public participation and how it relates to food policy. As Ireland's next agri-food strategy, the successor to Foodwise 2025, will have wide-ranging effects on livelihoods, rural communities, and our environment. The voice of the public in getting the strategy right is critical from the outset and right through to implementation and evaluation. The strategy will play a fundamental role in addressing the climate and biodiversity emergency over the next decade and will have an impact on every community in the country. It will act as a key policy driver during what is a critical time for action and it must be based on principles of sustainability operating within ecological limits if we are to succeed in achieving our climate and biodiversity targets. It also must support farmers in adapting to new practices while also ensuring that they receive fair prices for the production of healthy and nutritious food. Indicators show that trends for greenhouse gas emissions, biodiversity loss and water quality are all heading in the wrong, in the wrong direction and need to be reversed. The figure below shows the overall breakdown of our greenhouse gas emissions by sector according to EPA data and we see that nearly 34% of emissions are currently coming from the agriculture sector. Um, next slide, please, Colette. So when we look at biodiversity and water quality as well, we see that two-thirds of Ireland's regularly occurring wild bird species are either red or amber listed as birds of conservation concern. And one-third of our 99 wild bee species are threatened with extinction. And some of the reasons for those declines include loss of habitats through conversion to intensive farmland, as well as forestry and the loss of flowering plants as a food source, as well as pesticide use. We also see water quality showing a decline in, in Ireland from 2013 to 2019, with now only 53% of Ireland's surface water bodies having a satisfactory water quality. Um, and, you know, key pressures on water quality are agriculture and forestry. Uh, next slide, please. So the role and the voice of the public in developing and implementing this strategy cannot be understated. As such, there have been opportunities for individuals and communi communities to feed into the process at different points. 
So first, there, um, the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine launched an online survey as part of its initial consultation phase. Nearly 60% of responses were from primary producers, so farmers and fishers, and 56% were from those working in or representing the agriculture sector. Protecting biodiversity, water and climate came second and third to ensuring safe and healthy food in the responses. Environmental sustainability also ranked as the number one concern for processors as consumers are demanding this. What we see from these results is that the overwhelming majority of people who shared their views want practices and policies that are sustainable. The department also held a public engagement event to exchange views and information, which was a step in the right direction to bring together a broad range of stakeholders. One seat on the 31-person stakeholder committee was given to environmental NGOs to advise and, and, and advise on the strategy. Due to the breadth of wide-ranging issues to consider regarding climate, biodiversity, and water quality, best practice would have been to broaden the representation of those voices and also allow civil society to select our own representatives in this forum. A public consultation on the scoping element of the SCA process was launched in August with a deadline for responses set for the 8th of September. So environmental groups once again cited the tight time frame, which again fell during a holiday period and, and we were granted an extension for that. And what are the steps, the next steps for public participation? The strategy, the draft strategy is expected to be published this year as stated in the program for government alongside the environmental assessment documents. And these will all be open for public consultation as civil society will be calling for a process that is inclusive, accessible, transparent, and also accountable. We'll be measuring the impact of public participation by looking at the extent to which members of the public's views have been taken into account. Um, next slide, please. So what we need really is a new roadmap which empowers communities and strengthens the decisions and the processes that we use. As we work towards a just recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic and turn commitments into real action on climate breakdown and biodiversity loss, we must put people and communities at the center of decision-making through deliberative processes that are participative, open, and conclusive at all stages if we are really to ensure that no one is left behind. We need to engage, inform, and build trust, particularly among the most marginalized communities and individuals, and adopt new ways of working as we move towards a, new, a more sustainable future. We need appropriate levels of funding and resourcing to actively encourage awareness, engagement, and participation. Barriers per, to participation need to be mitigated, for example, around literacy, mobility, and geographic location when designing and implementing these processes. We need sufficient timeframes for all stages, which include time for, includes time for taking due account of the outcomes and also provisions for the zero option. Policy making must be open, inclusive and transparent with widely accessible information sharing and also consistent frameworks for participation. We need to close the feedback loop ensuring that people know what happens to their submissions and views after they share them. We need to ensure that civil society can choose our own representatives in official fora 
encouraging active citizenship and also robust decision-making. And finally, we need to harness the knowledge and expertise available in local communities throughout the country by reinvigorating and resourcing appropriately the PPNs, which can and should play a much bigger role in decision-making. And thanks, Scott. That's, that's you, Karen, that's, excuse me, sorry, I wasn't sure what I was moving on to. Karen, thank you very much for that. Um, again, a very insightful presentation, and it gives us all a very different perspective on the environmental aspect of what um, should hopefully be involved in some form of social dialogue, what exact shape that is to take, as I say, we must all wait and see, and perhaps the next speaker I would suggest may have some ideas on that. That, of course, is Dr. Sean Healy. For those of you who may not know him, and I'm sure you're very few out there, he's the CEO of Social Justice Ireland for more than 30 years. He's been active on issues of socioeconomic policy in this country. Before that, he worked for more than 10 years in Africa. He's done work with the European Commission, the Council of Europe, the European Economic and Social Council, and the United Nations. Currently, he is a member of Ireland's National Economic and Social Council. Sean, over to you. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Um, thanks to Connect for loading up the slides as well. Uh, in the same way that a flash of lightning can suddenly illuminate a night sky and reveal details of the landscape that might not otherwise have been seen, so COVID-19 has lit up parts of Ireland's economic and social fabric which have been neglected up to now. Now that neglect may not have been intended. However, once it has been seen, it cannot again be unseen. If it is neglected subsequently, then such neglect is culpable. For much of the 20th century, the primary focus of government policy has been on promoting economic growth. This was the means that would allow governments and society to achieve what they wanted, and it was the metric by which governments would be judged as successful or not. Uh, new research suggests that the relationship between economic growth and social outcomes is much more complex. Social exclusion, poverty and inequality are not the result of poor economic performance, but are actually factors that can retard economic progress. They are causes and not just effects. Ireland has been I've seen some very notable positives in recent years, and it's important to acknowledge these. They've been acknowledged already by some other speakers, but I myself would point to economic growth, which has been exceptional. Unemployment fell dramatically until the start of COVID. Our population growth has been steady, and it ensures that Ireland's dependency ratio is much more positive than most of its peer countries in the EU 15. At the same time, however, uh, these very positive developments have been accompanied by others which call into question Ireland's social uh, uh, contract between the citizen and the state. The lightning flash clarity produced by the COVID pandemic has convinced many people of what they already suspected. That is that serious consideration needs to be given to the failures that have consistently dogged Ireland's approach to policy and decision making in recent decades. The experience of COVID-19 has highlighted major challenges being faced by Irish society. Challenges 
for people in low paid employment, for people in the social welfare system who find themselves, for example, uh, with no increases in their core payments uh, in two for two budgets in a row. Uh, likewise, the levels of homelessness and insufficient supply of social housing are obviously quite serious uh, negatives, if you like. And that, that's been referred to already as well. The lack of an effective broadband system across the country is obviously a very, uh, another example of the country's infrastructure deficit, uh, which was highlighted in the pandemic. Uh, the society's failure to effectively address the growing levels of inequality and deprivation again do attention to the fundamental failures of, very rich, of a very rich society, which we are, our failure to make the adjustments required to ensure everyone had the basics required to live life with dignity. In the area of services of particular significance during the pandemic was the obvious inadequacy of the two-tier healthcare system. While the healthcare personnel responded heroically to the challenges presented, there was no hiding from the fact that many vulnerable people were not as well served as their better off fellow citizens. The lack of an adequate supply of childcare is another such example, and it has major implications for addressing issues such as unemployment and uh, the various points that were made earlier on by other speakers as well. Ireland's pattern of going from boom to bust to boom to bust has become a, a serious concern as well. And it has led people to ask questions about why this pattern has to be repeated over and over and over again. Why can't we break it? Now, at a governance level, more and more people are questioning why they have no real voice in shaping the decisions that impact on them. Uh, there would be widespread support, it seems to us in Social Justice Ireland, for a new social contract focused on delivering a society with a thriving economy, decent services and infrastructure, just taxation, good governance and sustainability. That's what we have proposed. Basically that those five items should be given priority and that they be worked on simultaneously. So the government, the priority of the society, priorities would be to build a thriving economy, decent services and infrastructure, just taxation, good governance and sustainability. Most people would agree that uh, those five outcomes would be well, uh, would do go a long way towards addressing the, the issues that I've just been pointing out. But they should be focused on simultaneously, a point that Colette Bennett was making earlier on in the second session. A thriving economy cannot be built without decent services and infrastructure, without just taxation, without good governance, and without sustainability at its core. So these five outcomes must be addressed simultaneously. You can't build an economy without doing the other four simultaneously. And I think that's part of the reason, in, in fact, that we have gone from boom to bust and back, and back again. A new vision is required, one that challenges all citizens to be the best that they can be. A vision that provides for everybody's well-being by protecting the environment on which we all depend. Business as usual is not an option. Neither is returning to the old normal. I'm going to focus on a few particular issues, starting with the distribution of resources. Ireland's macroeconomic situation continues to improve with each release of national income figures from the CSO. Employment continues to rise at an impressive rate, or at least it did until the start of COVID, and long-term unemployment was at its lowest in a decade. Yet despite the economic gains of recent years, and before adjusting for the negative impacts of the pandemic, 
Ireland continue to trade our other Western European counterparts in terms of service delivery and infrastructure investment. As a result, a deficit, a deficit has emerged between Ireland and our peer countries in the EU15. It should not need stating that this deficit cannot be closed without increasing our current levels of public investment. The budget 2021 seems to have taken a decisive step in the right direction in this regard. The profile of Ireland's population I mentioned earlier is changing, and this also requires a bespoke policy response from government. Policymakers must acknowledge that a thriving economy is not a goal in itself, but a means to social development and well-being for all. There are clear limitations in the development path Ireland has been taking. While it performs well when measured by some macroeconomic standards, the reality for many citizens and for the environment is different. For, exa for example, due to the current housing situation and several other factors, many citizens are facing the prospect that their standard of living will not equal that of their parents, the first generation uh, in which that is the case for many centuries. It is clear that Ireland's recovery pre-COVID had not been experienced equally by all, and this situation has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Public services remain overstretched even at this point. As part of a new model for development, government should ensure that future rising areas such as social housing, primary care, and mental health facilities, elder care services and supports, and childcare and early education facilities. These are areas in particular where Ireland has been experiencing an, uh, an infrastructure deficit for quite some time. Policy initiatives that government could prioritize in this area of distribution of resources in society would be, for example, to set an ambitious target for the reduction and eventual eradication of poverty, to set uh, core welfare payments um, at, at, a, a, at a level and benchmarking there and link that to the minimum essential standard of living set out by the Vincentian Partnership for Social Justice. Move the national minimum wage in the direction of the living wage. Uh, a, a basic income system mentioned earlier as well uh, in a couple of the presentations, uh, it's something obviously long advocated by Social Justice Ireland, but we believe it would go a long way to ensuring that everyone has enough money to live life with dignity. It would place an income floor underneath every individual, which can be relied upon regardless of changing circumstances, whilst also structuring Ireland's welfare system in a way that better meets the needs of the modern economy, increasing flexibility for individuals of working age and reducing inequality in society. It would also be a great enabler, giving people greater control over their lives and how they wish to divide them. Um, between work and education and caring and volunteering and leisure. Basic income seems to us uh, it should be a key part of a welfare system that is fit for the 21st century economy. But as mentioned earlier on by both Danny and Patricia, uh, these are the kinds of issues that we need to be able to sit down with government and across the table from each other and discuss and evaluate and see what the situation actually is. Another area that I want to look at now is valuing all people, the whole issue of values and how we put that into place, but particularly valuing people, all people. Social Justice Ireland believes strongly in the importance of developing a rights-based approach to social, economic, environmental, and cultural policy. Such an approach will go a long way towards addressing the inequality Ireland has been experiencing, 
and should be at the heart of the development model for a just society. We believe that seven basic rights should be acknowledged and, require, and uh, recognized. And these are the rights to sufficient income to live life with dignity, the right to meaningful work, appropriate accommodation, relevant education, essential healthcare, cultural respect, and real participation in society. And we believe that public policy should be working towards vindicating these seven rights. And the policy implications of vindicating these rights are spelt out in some detail in the paper, which but I'm not going to go elaborate on them here, just to say that they would all be part of what we would see as a new social contract uh, for, our, for Ireland. Uh, now, another piece here is securing the common good, another issue I think that needs highlighting. Social Justice Ireland also believes that well-being and the common good should be at the centre of policy development. In recent years, there have been many useful discussions and publications on the issue of well-being. The National Economic and Social Council defined well-being as, as follows. A person's well-being relates to their physical, social and mental state. It requires that basic needs are met, that people have a sense of purpose, and that they feel able to achieve important goals to participate in society and to live the lives they value and have reason to value. Now, this is the well-being that Social Justice Ireland would like for all members of society and for not just our society, but for all society. As far back as Plato, it was recognized that the person grows and develops in the context of society. Society originates because the individual is not self-sufficient, but has many needs which she or he can't supply. The person grows and develops through relationships with other people, with, with family, with neighbors, with community, the wider society. And down through the ages, various philosophies and social arrangements have been proposed to meet the felt needs in society to fulfill their perceived obligations in the, to their members. This issue is addressed as far back as the work of Aristotle and Plato and Cicero and many others. In more recent times, the dignity of the person has been enshrined in the UN a a Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we advocate that the dignity of each and every person must be recognized, acknowledged, and promoted effectively. And this implies that societies, structures, institutions, and laws should exist for the authentic development of the person. But the right of, individual, of the individual to freedom and personal development is limited by the rights of other people. And that leads to another core value, namely the common good. Now the philosopher John Rawls defined the common good as certain general conditions that are equal equally to everyone's uh, advantage. Now, social Justice Ireland understands the term common good as the sum of those conditions of social life by which individuals, families and groups can achieve their own fulfillment in a relatively thorough and ready way. This understanding recognizes the fact that the person develops their potential in the context of society where the needs and rights of all members and groups are respected. The common good then consists primarily of having the social systems, the institutions and the environments on which we all depend work in a manner that benefits all people simultaneously and in solidarity. And the National Economic and Social Council study referred to already states that at a, at a societal level, a belief in a common good has been shown to contribute to the overall well-being of society. And this requires a level of recognition of rights and responsibilities, empathy with others, and the values of citizenship. And now I want to move on to take a look at uh, 
a critically important issue, which is ensuring sustainability, the whole issue of sustainability. Despite the crises that I have talked about in housing and health and our aging population and many other issues besides which we are, besides, besides these, which we've already referenced, climate change remains the greatest long-term challenge facing Ireland today. It is all the greater for the fact that Ireland alone cannot control this and any solutions implemented by Ireland will be of minimal use if not adopted as part of a global effort to curb emissions and move to a carbon neutral economy in the coming decades. However, that is no excuse for Ireland shirking its obligations as has been the case until now. Sustainable development is development which meets the needs of the present while not compromising the needs of the future. Financial, economic, environmental and social sustainability are all key objectives and they are all interlinked. And creating a sustainable Ireland requires the adoption of new indicators to measure progress. National income figures, which we depend on so much, are limited to measuring the monetary value of gross output income and expenditure in an economy and include many activities that are in fact detrimental to society and incompatible with the common good, while omitting other activities from that count uh, that are essential for society to survive and thrive. Social Justice Ireland believes that using a country's performance on the Sustainable Development Goals as a benchmark would be a more appropriate measurement of progress and well-being. And I reiterate the point made by Colette uh, Bennett earlier in the day that the Sustainable Progress Index, which Social Justice Ireland publishes each year, it shows various things that need to be picked up, particularly in this context that Ireland's environmental performance compared to the, to the EU, all, all the other countries in the EU 15, ranks us in the most recent one, which is 2020, published earlier this year, it ranked us 15th out of 15, bottom of the class. This points to policies that have prioritized economic growth above sustainability, and this is an approach that cannot be allowed to continue. Social Justice Ireland suggests that government beginning using an index such as the Sustainable Progress Index to measure Ireland's true progress annually. Sustainability is about more than the environment. It can also, it is about the environment always, but it's about a lot more as well. It can also relate to finances, economics, and social well-being. And I acknowledge government's publication on well-being that was published with Budget 2021 which is certainly a step in the right direction. A sustainable social and economic model also requires balanced regional development. I'm not going to go into this, but there's a section in the paper on that. And also the, that there must be a, a concept of a, a just transition should be there and what it entails should be an issue uh, for consideration in a social dialogue involving all stakeholders, a suggestion that has been made by other speakers already today. And finally, the responsibilities and obligations of the global north towards the planet and the peoples of east and south must be taken into account. There is a double obligation on the rich world to decarbonize rapidly in its production and consumption practices and to help to fund mitigation and adaptation programs in the global south. These are issues that should be addressed in a new social dialogue and contained in a new social contract. Moving on then to look at a new social dialogue, what would it actually look like? 
If Ireland is to succeed in addressing the challenges identified here, the pathway to doing so must be founded on consensus, must be well managed and must be properly evaluated. It has been widely recognised that Ireland's government governance was poor in certain areas prior to the economic crisis of a decade ago, and this is particularly so with regard to uh, financial regulation. But uh, decisions, uh, in reality, decisions were often made without any consultation or no substantial consultation of a great many stakeholders. That's a situation that uh, must uh, be adjusted. Reforming governance and widening participation must remain a key goal. A deliberative decision-making process involving all stakeholders and founded on reasoned, evidence-based debate is required. Everyone should have the right to participate in shaping the society in which they live and the decisions that impact on them. And in the 21st century, this involves more than voting in elections and referenda. Ireland needs real, regular, structured, deliberative democracy to ensure that all the sectors of society can contribute to the discussion, to the decisions making of the, in, on the kind of Ireland uh, that uh, they wish to, 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 to see emerge and develop. Social dialogue helps a great many things. We've seen some of them listed already. It highlights issues at an early stage, which would allow them to be addressed promptly. More importantly, it ensures that the various sectors of society are involved in developing mutually acceptable solutions to problems that emerge, which in turn would be most likely to ensure their support for such solutions when implemented by government. And for such an approach to succeed, it must include all five pillars, the employers, trade unions, farmers, community and voluntary and environmental. Just to be clear, we're not talking about uh, the community and voluntary sector, for example, sitting in on the pay negotiations. No, that's not where the issue is, where there's an issue. However, it has to also be acknowledged that there's only so much uh, to be distributed in the cake. There's a cake is a limited size. And when decisions are made, the voices must all be heard on those decisions. And in many ways, a big chunk of the pie goes on pay increases and various trade-offs, including tax cuts and things of that nature. So it's very important that all the voices of the various uh, stakeholders be heard uh, before decisions are made. It should not be a situation where uh, some, decision, some issues are decided by a small number of uh, stakeholders and then the rest are left with whatever's left over. That should not be the situation. There has to be respect in this. As already noted, Ireland faces significant challenges in the coming decades. Uh, among them, the housing and health situations that I referred to a few times. Uh, but we need to get beyond growth and markets and recognize that while they do have a role, they're only part of the solution. It's also important that all sectors of society, young and old, urban and rural, businesses, trade unions, farmers, community voluntary, social inclusion and environmental, have a voice in deciding how these challenges will be met. Ned was mentioned, the National Economic Dialogue was mentioned earlier, and I would share some of the comments that were made about that at that time. I would agree with them. Social dialogue involving all sectors would enable the development of mutually acceptable solutions to problems. And it would, uh, it, towards that end, I think one of the things that we need to bear in mind is the importance of increasing the transparency of budgetary and other important decisions. Now, I, I want to recognize the work done by the Oireachtas Committee on the Budget and the Parliamentary Budget Office. There's been a huge increase or improvement in this whole area, 
but there is still a, a way to go and it's it's important that we travel that road um, but um, it seems to me that that should be a statutory responsibility those kinds of things should be available those kinds of that type of transparency the new social contract outlined earlier this is my conclusion really uh, the new social contract outlined earlier in this conference by Hel uh, Colette Bennett and summarized here and the policy framework underpinning it are based on a very simple premise that we understand where we are as a society that we can see where we want to go and that there is a logical pathway that will get us there that is what a genuine social dialogue uh, can achieve ireland has for too long been afflicted by a state of affairs whereby we understand the issues we know what needs to be done to improve matters that we find ourselves failing to take the correct steps it's time to change that it's uh, I think in our proposals on a new social contract, um, uh, a comprehensive framework setting out the current situation that we have there and the issues that need to be faced and the goals that we wish to achieve, reach as a society, this would, uh, would certainly uh, be useful uh, as a, a major contribution, we think, to the working through of what a new social contract would look like. Now, finally, Having expounded on the need for an, for an overhaul of capitalism, if, if that's the way you might put it, um, at least capitalism as we know it, is, it is perhaps with some irony, I give the closing words of this paper to Milton Friedman, that great exponent of neoliberalism and winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1976. He said, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around our basic function is to develop alternatives to existing policies to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. It seems to me that now we're at such a moment. Ireland and indeed the planet faces several crises ranging from the pandemic, from pandemic to pollution to poverty, a situation where business as usual can mean only social and environmental catastrophe. Uh, there are alternatives that have been uh, that have been developed it seems that uh, these alternatives and ideas to existing policies should uh, result if they were discussed in a fairer more just society and they are now available all sectors of Irish society should be engaged in an ongoing social dialogue to, to decide how best to proceed Ireland needs a new social contract and a new social dialogue thank you Thanks very much, Sean. As usual, thanks, and great to hear you quoting Milton Friedman. That's uh, that's one for the books. Anyway, we'll we'll, uh, we'll record that one. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it interesting. If you want to read more about this topic and for all of the papers from our 2020 annual social policy conference, check out our website www.socialjustice.ie. And as always, if you have any ideas for future podcasts feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>